Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the first Nate Duncan-less episode of the Dunked On Basketball Podcast. I am Daniel Rue, your frequent co-host and interim host host. Nate is on his honeymoon, and so I am taking over the show for two weeks, which will mostly be team preview episodes. Really going to enjoy that. This one I'm really proud of with Jabari Young on the Spurs and Chris Harrington on the Grizzlies. But first, I want to talk a little bit about something that I know very well, and that's the athletic. The athletic is a really powerful idea that I've been blown away by the execution, not only as a contributor, but also as a consumer of it. And they've tried to be really distinct. And that distinct element is not just the ad-free elements of the site, which are just amazing. The fact that it's so clean, the app is unbelievable, but also that they give space to voices and give a lot of creative freedom to voices so that you can get stories that are hard to put anywhere else, but they fit beautifully in The Athletic. One of my favorite recent pieces from Ethan Sherwood-Strauss about advanced scouts in the NBA. And it is a field that I think a lot of people who love basketball don't necessarily know about. And even if they know the name, they don't know what that entails day to day. And The Athletic provided a great avenue for Ethan to tell that story. And there are so many amazing writers all around. Really, whatever sporting thing in North America you're interested in, they have great coverage of it or they will in the very near future. So you can check it out. Go to theathletic.com slash capspace. Capspace, something we talk about all the time on the show. And you get 40% off your first year of subscription. I've been a part of it since almost the launch. I actually consulted before and I could not be more proud to associate with them on the Dunked On podcast. But now we'll really get started with Jabari Young. Jabari covers the San Antonio Spurs for the San Antonio Express News and a really great conversation about where this team is, where they're going, and how they fit in the Western Conference in this year that will define a lot of what this team is now. I mean, with the key players so far away, I mean, some of that it's physical distance, and then now, sadly enough, with Manu and Tim Duncan retired. So we talk about a lot of different things, and then, of course, after that, stay tuned for Chris Harrington talking in depth about the Grizzlies. Thanks so much for coming on. Mm-hmm. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. The Spurs are an absolutely fascinating team for this, because I think there are, there are kind of two discussions that we should start with, and the first one that I think gets lost in the shuffle a little bit, and it'll be good to get to, to begin with this, is just what San Antonio was able to accomplish last year. Because, I mean, they finished the year and made the playoffs, and as the seventh seed in the West, for number four defense, despite having the best perimeter defender on the planet basically not playing almost the whole year. And so there's certainly a perspective on this that basically said, okay, they were able to cobble it together last year. This team will have, you know, they'll obviously have more, hopefully more of DeRozan than they did of Kawhi Leonard, but there's also a whole lot of other turnover that we're going to need to talk about. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically the, the turnover, you know, obviously is what? You know, you get rid of Kawhi Leonard and you get rid of Danny Green and you get DeMar DeRozan back um, and, uh, you know, Jakob Pertle. 
So, you know, DeMar DeRozan, that's the that's going to be the fit. That's what everybody's going to be looking at. Um, and then obviously the starting lineup. I would imagine if you put a gun to my head right now, you would say LaMarcus, Paul Gasol, DeJounte Murray, uh, DeMar DeRozan, and possibly Rudy Gay. Um, you know, I think Rudy, you know, they've been bringing him back at the number that they brought him back. I think he wants a bigger role, and especially in that starting lineup. Let's say you get back to Rudy Gay that was in Sacramento, and, um, you know, he's giving you about, you know, 17, 19 points a game. DeMar does what he does, Marcus does what he does, and you've got a pretty formidable, you know, nice little three-headed monster there, uh, not to mention, you know, a, a young guard who, remember, last year he was second team all defense, you know, I mean, he, he's, he, he certainly is going to be entering camp with a lot of confidence um, at the start point guard position, and he don't have to look over his shoulder anymore, right? There's no Tony Parker, there's no great problem, he's not going to yank the keys from DeJounte Murray um, and, and hand them back to Tony Parker, which he did last season, so that's over. Uh, and now you have a, a, a team that they're going to go through their ups and downs. They all try to get used to each other, but this is going to be an interesting team. Um, and they can certainly hold their, they certainly will hold their own in the West. And it ain't going to be more, it ain't going to be just about the talent. It's going to be about the coach. And the Greg Popovich is a, a damn good coach. We know this. I mean, look what they did last year without Kawhi Leonard. They were third in the West. A lot of people would forget that. They were third in the West for the majority of the season. And then obviously the injuries and things started to catch up to them and they fell in a, in, into the seventh seed. And, you know, as, as other teams climbed up. But they held that third spot without Kawhi Leonard. Now you don't have to worry about Kawhi Leonard. He's going You get back to Martin Rosen. Arguably, it's a better team in a way, a more talented team. So, you know, and I know everybody else has improved too. You know, obviously the Lakers, Warriors with Marcus Cousins. But, um, you know, the Rockets may have kind of fell off a little bit, losing a lot of defensive uh, of guys. But, again, um, this is going to be an interesting year for the Spurs, a, a year that there's no more big three. It's a new era that's starting. So it's going to be really interesting. And I like that you brought up the coaching element of it, because something that I've, I've heard a couple of different times, I think Matt Moore has said this well, is that San Antonio, with their coaching and their system and their talent, and this is still a, a deep team if they can stay healthy. I mean, they, I was I was running through kind of the idea of the rotation. You're like, oh, yeah, they're playing a lot of, you know, legit NBA caliber guys, and they even have some some players who might be out of the rotation who could play on a lot of other teams. And San Antonio, because of all of those different factors, especially if their defense holds up as well, and I mean they have Dejounte Murray, they have a lot of, they still have, they still have a lot of pieces. There's some question marks there in terms of turnover, but they should be able to run a lot of the worst teams in the league. And if they win those games at a much higher clip than a lot of the teams in the kind of the mid tier in the West, like and, and San Antonio might be better than that. You, as you said, they were third a lot of last year. That gives them a buffer that either so either you can outplay that you don't need that buffer at all and that gets you a better seed in the conference or then maybe if you happen to give up a couple of games whether that's due to injury or due to you know other teams having a lot of talent I mean this is going to be a very strong western conference yet again then you can pull that off and I fully believe that San Antonio as long as Popovich is there even losing as many of the pieces of like institutional memory that this team I mean no Tony Parker no Mondo Ginobili of course no Tim Duncan and no Kawhi I still think a lot of those things are in, in play enough for me to believe that when the Orlando Magic come into town or when they go to Detroit, and Detroit, you know, they're a fringe playoff team, but like if, if when those situations happen, I'm still expecting San Antonio to win almost all those games. Most definitely, they will. Um, they, they're going to win a lot of games. Um, it's going to be, like I said, it's going to be very interesting that, uh, you know, you, you have, well, you know, no, I'm not going to say that. I, I can't say that they're going to win those games. Listen, last year, Danny, we saw this team and they were struggling up and down. Um, they're going to go through their fair share of ups and downs. And I think it's important for them to start off a little strong 
Not 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 out of the gate, they're going to be on a 12, 13-game winning streak, but start off a little strong. The Spurs usually start off okay, and then as Greg Popovich is learning rotations and things like that, he starts to you know maneuver things, and it takes about two months. Um, so by December, you'll see certain things, you'll see certain lineups change because he's trying to get in his head what he's trying to put out there by January, so that way by the time the Spurs hit that rodeo road trip, he has a pretty good idea of the combos and who he wants to play here and in certain you know in situations. And that's why by February, they get going. Because by that time, that coaching staff and Greg Pablis have figured out who plays well with each other, who's supposed to be in a situation this, situation that. And then they start to get on the roll. During that time, they might drop a couple of games as they're trying to figure it out. The long haul, yeah, you expect if they see these games, these, these certain teams, especially in the West in the seven-game series, they, you know, they're, they're going to hold their own. Yeah, they will. And I can see them getting to the semifinals. I can. Western Conference Finals is, is, is going to be tough. It's going to be tough, but the semifinals certainly. I mean, come on. We can't expect the Spurs with this type of roster to, to fall in the first round. It's going to be that's, – that's, I don't think that that's going to happen. Semifinals, yes. They can hold their own in the semifinals, make little mistakes, and hope that the other team, you know, plays bad. They can get to the Western Conference Finals, and at the Western Conference Finals, we expect it to stop there. But then again, they can still hold their own. Let me tell you something. There is a theory – or not, not even a theory. There is a, a feeling around it, some NBA circles that – Steve Kerr still doesn't want to see Greg Popovich in a seven-game series when he has a full, healthy roster of everybody that he's supposed to have. That's a, that's a small thing that people that – I hear that from time to time. Like, we know how good the Warriors are. Ain't nobody – the Warriors ain't scared of nobody. They're two-time defending champions. You know, they are legit, okay? And there's no reason why they shouldn't win number three. But if they got to play the Spurs in a seven-game series in the Western Conference Finals and the Spurs are healthy and they're clicking and DeMar, LaMarcus, Rudy, you know, Marco's coming off the bench doing this thing, don't be so sure that the Warriors are just going to steamroll them and that it's going to just be a five, six-game series. That series can very well go seven. And why? Because of the head coach and Greg Popovich. He is that damn good. I mean, the man is a, tr- he is a strategic guy. You know, I remember back in 2014, I covered that first-round series against the Dallas Mavericks. It was so dope to see Rick Carlisle match wits with Greg Popovich. And Greg Popovich would later come out and say that was the toughest damn series I had to coach because Rick Carlisle was going wit for wit with him. I mean, they was going back and forth. And that's why the Mavs took them. That was the only team that took them and was a threat to the Spurs that year if you go back and look at it. Next series, Portland Trouble is no problem. Get out of here, okay? Serious after that, Oklahoma City Thunder, they knew what they wanted and they got it. They went to Oklahoma City to get it. And then obviously in the NBA Finals, they breeze right through the Miami Heat. But that series against the Dallas Mavericks, that changed the tune for that playoffs because at that point, the Spurs were prepared. It was coming. And Greg Popovich coached his you-know-what-off against Rick Carlisle that year, and that's why the Spurs won that 2014 title. So, again, they're going to go through the ups and downs. Greg Popovich is going to take time to figure it out. You know, the, the demand, even as great as he is, he still needs to figure things out. And you just hope that he's able to figure it out. You just hope that everybody messes the way that they're supposed to, because if they do, don't count the Spurs out. And that gets into something that I'm genuinely incredibly excited for this year, which is that the Spurs have more to figure out than they have in a long time. I mean, not only did they have a lot of turnover, but a lot of the pieces that that held over, you know, they're going to be in different roles or they're establishing it. You talked about DeJounte Murray, and he's a big one here. But a good stat from from John Schumann of NBA.com is that San Antonio, they're only bringing back 62% of the minutes they had played last year. And remember, Kawhi Leonard Mm -hmm. barely played last year. So you think about how different that is. And so it's, I mean, not that Pop and this coaching staff need any sort of test to prove themselves. They don't. That unambiguously, they don't. But I am very interested to see offensively and defensively how they incorporate the new additions and then where, 
like how how different does this team look than than the way they looked before? I I do not doubt that they're going to succeed, but you know offensively, you know they have two different guys now in DeRozan and and Marcus Aldridge who I think are more versatile than they get credit for. But they do mm-hmm. you know they do like to operate in specific places. And then defensively, Murray is special, and I think people lose sight of how special he is defensively. And San Antonio knows how to run their scheme and. Their bigs are largely held over, and I think Pirtle's going to fit in very well for them defensively. But, you know, on the perimeter, they have a lot of different pieces there. They don't have Danny Green. They don't have Kyle Anderson. And, of course, they don't have Kawhi, who they didn't have last year. So I'm so excited to see what what is different and what is the same about San Antonio's play on the floor and their identity this year. Well, first of all, I don't know. You know, it's, that's going to take some time to find out and see. Um, and I'm not going to try to pretend to to, to know uh, how they're going to look. You know, it's, it's going to be it's going to be a little bit of time. Second of the second of all, um, it, it, I think it's kind of clear what they did this offseason. Uh, and obviously, they were they were forced to do so. But when you get rid of Danny Gray and Kawhi Leonard, um, when you let a guy like Kyle Anderson go because he got a bigger deal, um, and you know Tony Parker's not here anymore, you lose that that experience. Mono Ginobili retires, you lose that experience. Um, they kind of traded defense for offense, right? Uh, Pirtle might be okay for them defensively, but he's still young. He still has a ways to go, and I think he will develop under San Antonio. They're going to do well. Lamarcus um, is, I think, has really been surprised a lot of people over the last two years about how good of a defender that he can be, but he still isn't the best defender. Kyle Gasol is a liability um, at times, uh, and like I said, you trade defense for offense. You have a lot of young you know, guys coming back. DeJounte Murray again is going to hold his own. I think Rudy is a respectable defender, especially when he really wants to be. And I think Rudy learned a hard lesson last year that if he wants to be on the floor, he has to really put all that energy in on defense. And you know, me and him even talked about this, uh, you know, one time when, you know, I know it was Greg Popovich had put him in and then took him out and Rudy didn't get back in. And I went to Rudy and I asked him, hey, you know, what do you think that was about? And he says, you know, listen, I know I got to be better on defensive end of the floor. And then from there on out, I've noticed that Rudy's defense, defensive play was improved. You know what I mean? I remember one night, I forget how many, but he had like multiple blocks and he was all over the floor. Greg Popovich is even credited for that. Uh, but they traded defense for offense, right? That's no secret. I mean, you get DeMar DeRozan who, you know, no knock on him. You know, obviously he's not a top-notch lockdown defender. Um, and you add DeMar DeRozan, you add, you know, again, Pirtle, but um, Marco Bellinelli, right? He's not a lockdown defender. Dante Cunningham is going to hold his own. And I think that's another guy who I think is going to be very interesting coming into that second line, uh, in that second unit. Uh, you know, he, he can really hold his own, a 3 and D guy. Um, but, you know, Marco Bellinelli, we know that he's not, a, you know, the top-notch defender. So it's going to be interesting to see the combos. It's going to be interesting to see how they make it work. Now I can really see Marco and Dante Cunningham kind of splitting the role that Mono will is leaving behind. Uh, and, you know, then you got a young kid in Derek White. You know, I mean, he Spurs want to get him more playing time this year. So it's going to be interesting, man. It, it really, I'm curious to see how Greg Popovich is going to handle this roster because this is a roster that for the first time in his career, no big three, they're gone. It's over. How do you, where do you go from here? You know, that, that, uh, Corporate knowledge that he always threw out last year, that term corporate knowledge, and that was a, a term that he used to say that how Tony and Manu and when Tim, when he was playing, how they had that corporate knowledge. So when things were going, when things were in disarray on the floor, those three guys or either one of those guys, were on the floor, they knew how to get things in order. They knew what Greg Popovich wanted at certain times of the game, especially when the Spurs maybe, you know, or especially when they were enduring a, a, a run for the, uh, against the, uh, an opponent. 
you know. So I'm curious to see, like everybody else, how it goes. I really am. But what I will say is one of the things I'm keeping an eye on is that the Spurs made a mistake with LaMarcus Aldridge the first two years. They admit that mistake. Um, They came and they tried to force him to be something that he wasn't. They tried to force him to be something that, you know, it it wasn't him. You can't do that with DeMar DeRozan. You have to allow the system to incorporate him without changing him. And the system has to work around him just as much as he has to fit into the system. And if it's just going to be a one-sided or you got to fit into the system, then you're going to, you're, you're taking a player of his caliber and you're kind of limiting him. In all theory, right, you guys watch X's and O's basketball, you pay attention to X's and O's more. I ask you this question. DeMar DeRozan, is it true that he had to pretty much work for his points in, in Toronto? I mean, he he did a fair portion of the time. It is impressive to me how capable he is running pick and rolls now. Like that that's something he developed over the last couple of years. And he so I count that as working. You know, like you still have to do a lot with the ball in his hands. And part of that is that DeRozan, he's never I've never loved him as a catch and shoot guy. And so when you when you can't mm-hmm. really do that as much, then you have to do you have to do more work. I mean you can do that through cutting, running in transition. There are lots of different ways that you can make that happen and players succeed in those variety of ways. But yeah, I would say DeRozan right, does so it's have fair to, work. to say that he had to work. Oh, he, yeah. he had to work for those points in the hand. Yeah. In San Antonio, the system should allow him to get those points easier. You agree with that? Absolutely. And so if that's true, if that's true, and he's able to come into this system and get the points that he got easier, then one can make the argument that he could he could average even more than what he averaged in Toronto. And if LaMarcus Aldridge doesn't go into a deep corner and, you know, and, and doesn't, you know, sulk or, you know, hey, I'm not getting the touches I got last year when Kawhi wasn't around and he can still do what he does, which I think he will, then that's a pretty good one-two combo. And we and again, we're just leaving Rudy Gay on the outside for the time being. You know, you got a good one-two punch. And with the fact that they are going to still be a good, they're going to still be a respectable defense, defensive team. They may not be where they were last year, but they're still going to be, the great problem is demands it. You don't, you know, you don't give a damn who you are if you're not playing defense, you ain't going to play. Okay. Now, with that said, if they can find a way to make it work, and the only issue is, is that the spacing of it, because Lamarcus is a mid-range guy, DeMar is, he did take more threes last year, but you know his bread and butter is, you know, in the mid-range. If they can find a way to make that work and DeMar can get his points easier and Lamarcus still does what he does, you you got that's 40 points among them right there. And I'm just saying that's 20 and 20. That's 40 points. You can go and get another 50 to 60 somewhere else, okay, within all those other guys who are capable of scoring. And I'm only saying 40. That's a low number because nine times out of 10, DeMar DeRozan, I can see him averaging about 25, 26 points this season. I can. I can see, you know, Lamarcus around 21, 22, same kind of where he was last year. And then I can see Rudy around 19, you know, and Kyle Gasol, he'll still contribute when he needs to. So with all that said, that's some good firepower. Again, they traded defense for offense because they understand in, in this league, especially in today's league, you need to have offense to win. You do. The, the, league, I mean, the teams that the Spurs are going to have to see to get out of the West are too loaded on the offensive end. They can't stop everybody, and they lost the best two-way player in the league arguably when he's healthy. So they don't have that guy anymore that can say, yo, Kawhi, go shut him down, and Kawhi will be able to do it, and plus go and get you 25 the other way. They lost that. They don't have it anymore. So now you have to be able to trade, and you have to be able to say, okay, you know what? We don't have that guy anymore, so we got to go get a guy that's going to get us the point. And in, in, in crunch time, when we got teams that's loaded and they score, we got to make sure that we can get a, we got at least a couple guys that can get us some baskets. And last year they didn't have that. They had LaMarcus and, you know, guys stepped up here and there, but they didn't have consistency of guys doing that. This year they do, and like I said, it's going to be interesting to see how they put it together. 
that is an incredibly important point, and it ties in with an element that I think is is key for the Spurs, which is that their offense is going to succeed to the extent that it does, and I, I think the, the, there are plenty of reasons to believe that they'll be better than they were last year, partially because it is a fact of life that NBA teams in the regular season do not do much game planning for a specific opponent because they don't have the time. They're too busy doing everything mm-hmm. else. You know, they're developing their scheme. Mm-hmm. They're teaching guys, when, when this happens, you do this. Well, Absolutely. San Antonio is going to thrive in a completely different way than almost every other team. And so what that's going to lead to, especially, and I talked about this before with San Antonio beating up on bad teams, but I think it's going to be true far beyond that as well, where when they come into town or when you go into San Antonio, you're going, well, crap, what do we do now? Like, this is a very different, a very different beast to handle. And so there will be nights. And and I like thinking about DeMar and LaMarcus as a combined scoring entity, because I think there will be nights where one of them goes off and the other is a little bit more quiet. And then there will, of course, be nights that both of them go off because they can both do that. And it will be. It will yeah. be. And, and you like DeMar with the ball in his hands. You said you don't really like him coming off. Screen. So they're going to have to really, if they can get their pick and roll, they can get that, you know, two, four pick and roll going between them two. They're going to be dangerous, man. I'm telling you. They can they can eat that mid-range alive because LaMarcus, obviously, you can't just leave him because he has the ability to hit the, the mid-range. You leave DeMar, he's probably driving to the rim, and maybe he can find an open shooter. The ball, I'm like – in your head, you think like, "Yo, there's so many possibilities." You know, I mean, somewhere Greg Popovich has to be smiling. Like, I know, I, I, I we gonna figure this out. And, and we never even mentioned the human element. Demar Derozan is playing for something that he is not has not had the fire to play for, and that's now I'm really demanding respect in this league. Y'all trade me after I was loyal. Now I'm really gonna kill y'all. Now you even forget that. This man is coming into training camp with a whole new mindset, with a mindset that's probably that that that's, that he wants the big contract. He already got it, but now he wants it. Now, like his mindset is completely different. We missed the human element side. We looking at the X's and O's, talking about X's and O's. That's fine, but now it's different. It's kind of like that same thing that Lamarcus had last year. All right, he signed his extension. Now he wanted to prove that he was an All Star again. That he's he wasn't no slouch. He could still be an All Star in this league if they let him be who he is. And last year was all about Lamarcus Aldridge getting back to the Lamarcus Aldridge that we've seen in Portland, and he made it happen. I mean, the man was I mean, he he was clutch. He was money. You could, you saw it. He wanted that respect because he felt the last few years, especially when he didn't make the All Star team, that people were sleeping on him. That it was San Antonio's fault that they didn't make him. They didn't allow him to be what he was when he first signed there, and he wanted out. And that's on record. That's on record. Last year, after they sat down and hashed it out, he signed an extension. Now it was about, yo, now I'm going back to claim my name in this league. And he did it. The Mars at that same role now. You're going to have a hungry player coming in here trying to just kill. Not to mention Rudy Gay, who's going to also try to do the same thing because he wants another contract. And he also, last year, was you know him trying to get his body back in order. But now he wants to prove that he still should be respected in this league. you got a team that's filled with hungry players and a team that's young. Those guys want to make their mark in this league. It should be fun. They're not going to be this team that, you know, they're not going to get a lot of TV appearances. We know that. Not especially national Christmas, all that stuff. But when you look at the end of the day, when you check those standings throughout the series, so throughout the year, San Antonio going to be right there. And all of a sudden, people going to look at the end of the season like, damn, they, they still there? Oh, watch out for them. If injuries, injuries permitting, of course, they should be a fun team to watch. And again, X's and O's aside, think about the mindset, the hunger that certain guys now in this roster feel. Yeah, you talked about the, you talked about the hunger, and something that I've been thinking about with that with DeRozan is if that feeds in defensively too, because 
accountability is a big part of how San Antonio succeeds in the end. And DeMar DeRozan has always had the capability of being a good defender. I mean, anybody who watches him play, the athleticism that he plays with, and he, he knows the game well, that he should be much better defensively than he is. And so if Popovich, maybe it's just having a different voice. I mean, Dwayne Casey is, I think, has done a very good job coaching the Raptors defensively overall the last few years. I mean, those guys have done really well. And so maybe Popovich and the coaching staff just reach DeRozan differently. Maybe they ask him to do things and just he doesn't have to become Kawhi Leonard or anything on that end. But if he's better than he has been so far, that will make a massive difference for them. Still plenty more to talk about with Jabari Young, but I want to take a moment to you can hear Nate's voice talk about hymns. So when I was about 25 years old, I specifically remember the moment I had just started law school and there was this one picture of me that was made me think like, oh man, I'm actually like starting to lose my hair here. Like, what am I going to do? So the landscape was pretty difficult at that time, but I decided, all right, I'm going to start using finasteride and because I want to keep the hair that I already have. It's much harder to regrow it once it's already gone. So I wanted to jump on it quickly, but it was a really, really difficult process to do that. I had to go in renewing the prescription. I had to like go in for appointments just to get a prescription, which was, was ridiculous. It's not like that kind of medication where they have to like monitor your treatment or something. But now with the advent of hymns for hymns.com, slash cap space is the url to get started with them you can connect with real doctors and get medical grade solutions to treat hair loss extremely easily just answer a few quick questions a doctor will review and prescribe you and the products are shipped directly to your door thanks to science baldness can be optional and i kept my hair pretty well for about 13 years now and the way to get started with hymns and get a trial month of just five dollars while supplies last is again for hymns.com slash cap space that's f-r-h-i-m-s.com slash cap space for hymns.com slash cap space let them know that slash cap space url that you came from us a question that i think is really interesting with this team which is basically who if we're taking last year as as what it was who do we expect to play better this year and who do we expect to play worse I think Rudy Gay is a pretty clear positive he is coming back from he is now back from this injury he knows what San Antonio is expecting from him we'll see what his role is I think he's he's mm-hmm. an interesting one there I mean we don't know how much Derek White is going to play he is an obvious one if he plays because I mean just he looked a lot better in summer league and then on the worst side my instinct the first guy I thought of was Pal, just because it doesn't seem like he they need him as much and maybe if he's not in the closing five. I don't know exactly which way Pop's going to go with that. Maybe he kind of deactivates a little bit, but I mean, he's still a very talented basketball player. I could, I, it's not like I expect him to have a massive decline. I just could potentially see it coming. Yeah. I mean, and you said Pau Gasol just now. Yeah. I think Pau could take a step back this year. Yeah. I mean, listen, um, I, I spoke to Pau Gasol a little last year before, after the season wrapped up in Golden State. And you know, one of the things you can just still sense from him is that he still believes he is a, a viable starter in this league. I'm not sure Greg Popovich agrees with him on that. We'll see. But, um, you know, I I respect the man's hunger that he still feels like, hey, I can still be productive. And listen, for everything, and again, Pogasol gets a lot of flack down here amongst San Antonio fans. And I understand. I mean, he's not what he once was. And people are thinking that a guy who was that good throughout his career has to be good forever. No, that's not true. He's older. He, you know, he's clearly lost his step. Um, but he's still one of the most fundamental big men in this league. He still has one of the best basketball IQs in this league. And that can't be taken for granted. Uh, you know, I remember watching him in Portland last year, and he was phenomenal. Came back 
and, you know, in Utah uh, and had a pretty good game. Um, so, you know, he can still hold his own. He may take a step back, but at the same time, I still think that a guy like him, you can still utilize his basketball IQ, uh, you know, specifically on the offensive end. Because, you know, and, and, but, and that's why I feel like I understand he wants to start, but he can really be very, very good in that second unit. I mean, beating up on younger guys who haven't known the game or know the game or has as much experience as him. That's where Tony Parker was able to thrive last year. When he came off the bench, I think I thought it was a good move because he can beat up on those second unit guys. You know, I mean, come on. You know, guy, Tony Parker going up against a rookie in the, in the lane and he gets fouled, he ain't getting the benefit of the doubt, the rookie not. Tony Parker is a, is, is a vet in this league. He's going to get the call. And I think Pogasaw can make that work too. It comes a time where you have to just say, okay, you know what? I may not be a start anymore. I got this young guy ahead of me. You know, these young guys ahead of me because we can't forget, you know, uh, Metu. You know what I mean? Who, who's on it too? I mean, I, we know the Spurs like them. I mean, I don't know if he was going to get a lot of time, but they're not really deep on that big man front. You know, outside of Gasol and Aldridge, you know, Bertans is not really a power forward. You know, he's a really kind of a stretch three. Um, but uh, I can see him taking a step back. But I still think that the Spurs should not just put him all the way in the back. Um, I still think that they have to utilize him because he's that smart. And he, there are going to be times. I mean, nobody in, on, in this team plays 82 games. That Marcus is going to have those nights and, you know, he's going to be resting and Powell's going to have to come in there and that's when he can really thrive. And, and I think that's why I still believe he's going to be utilized, um, you know, effectively utilize uh, this upcoming season with all this change going on in San Antonio. If Powell is willing to, maybe not, maybe he still starts too. I mean, we've seen teams pull this off too, where a guy starts, but then he might not necessarily close games and he plays some with the second unit. Like if, depending on how they want to kind of square this up, that Powell could be perfect in that role if he's willing to embrace it. And I don't know how often Pop wants to go small with this team, how often he wants to play LaMarcus at center. They certainly have the pieces to do it, even though I think they'll miss Kyle Anderson in some of those roles, just because he was another guy that they can have out there at the forward spots. But if they go to, you know, I, I think of that more as like a late game playoff type thing for the Spurs rather than a regular season day. And then the other question with Powell is going to be how quickly Jakob Pertle comes along. I mean, I like Pertle's physical tools. I thought that there were some times in Toronto where he looked like a player who could be, you know, a solid starter. And as, as soon as he kind of learns the tricks of the trade for centers, gets a little bit stronger, he could become a really talented guy. And San Antonio is well positioned to get that to get that out of him because they know how to use players like him and they actually do use players like him, which is very different from certain teams now that are kind of going in different directions at the center spot. And so the dynamic between those two guys is going to be important for San Antonio, even if they end up, you know, closing games with Marcus at the five, because it's an 82 game season. There are 48 minutes in a game. As much as everybody likes talking about the new wave being teams going five out and everything else, a vast majority of the NBA regular season is not played that way. Mm hmm. I have a question for you, right? Let's say that, and I only ask you this because I respect your you and Nate your basketball IQ when it comes to the X's and O's of it. What's the best starting? What's the best small lineup that the Spurs can use when you look at this roster right now? So I think that you definitely start. I mean, DeRozan and Lamarcus are obviously in it. So you start with those two guys. I think if we're going small, then Lamarcus is playing the five. I like Rudy Gay as the power forward there. I think he's strong enough to hang mm -hmm. with those guys. I think he he fits well there, and then. You have a little bit of a challenge with DeJounte because of his shooting limitations, but he's such a good defender, and I think he's going to develop even more tools over this, you know, this offseason. I have obviously haven't seen him play yet this this year. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Develop more mm -hmm. tools to work within his limitations. So basically, getting even better as a cutter 
being opportunistic in transition, all of those sort of elements. So I would have him, and then you're thinking about the fifth spot. And so the fifth spot, you could go real small and go with somebody like Patty Mills. You could go a little bit more more balanced with with or a little bit a little bit taller with Manu and. It's interesting. Like, I mean, I would love for Derek White to be good enough to take on that mantle. Like, that, that would, he would be a really fun player because another guy who can do some with the ball in his hands who can shoot. I'm trying to think. So you, so, so you, so you maybe, maybe you do this, right? So if that's the, if that's the case, were you talking about Derek White as a small forward? I think, I think you'd probably have DeRozan guarding the other team's threes for the most part. And I think he can do okay. that. You know, it depends. You know, maybe if the other team has LeBron James, maybe you're not playing, you're put, putting, you put somebody a little bit bigger in. I would actually toy with, I mean, then the question with Rudy Gay gets in there, but they could even play, if Dante Cunningham has a good year, I could see him fitting in with some of those lineups. He's done it a little bit in New Orleans. New Orleans ended up playing him more at, at small forward than he probably should have. But yeah, I mean, San Antonio, the, what's interesting to me is for that fifth spot, they have a lot of options. They, like you talked about Davis Bertans being more of a kind of a stretch three. Who he defends is always a weird question, but he, of course, can shoot the ball. And so what, what are the things that I like about San Antonio? Of course, you would love to have like a fifth guy who was awesome oh yeah if you could have a clear cut star or something like that sure but if you're not going to have that one really useful part is to have a lot of different options and a coaching staff that is willing to play the guy who is the best fit because right. sometimes teams get wedded to playing the wrong guy i mean a good example of this could be okc last year with Mello, where he's getting torched all the time but because of the lack of other options and because of his equity with the players on the team and everything else, they get him out there. With San Antonio, like if that's what they want to do, if what they want to do is play LaMarcus at the five and then let's say it's Rudy at the four, well, then they'll figure out how to how to fill that fifth spot. And maybe some nights it's Patty Mills and you go, you go smaller and you just say, hey, we need to score a lot. You talked about the idea of offense versus defense. Maybe some nights it's Bellinelli on the same logic, just somebody who's a little bit different, Cunningham. And if one of the young guys steps up, that would be even better, you know, because then that's something you can really move forward with. And then, you know, maybe Rudy Gay doesn't come back and you have to get another forward, but you have that kind of foundational piece because it looks like DeRozan, Aldridge, and DeJounte are going to be around for a couple of years to come at least. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's interesting because, you know, I think the small lineups are going to be where the Spurs um, really have their best success. I mean, you know, they they tried to go big last year and having LaMarcus and Powell and then, um, you know, and, and tried that. And, and I, I really feel like they have to figure out small lineup success and who they can plug in there. And this is where guys like, you know, Derek White, as you mentioned, is going to come into play. Lonnie Walker, I feel like he's going to get his time to, to, to not a lot, I feel like he's going to get his moments to, to kind of contribute. You know, other than that, he'll probably be in Austin development. He's still a year away. That's just the way the Spurs run their operation. Um, but I just really feel that, you know, and looking at it right now, and again, this is just off the top and some of the things I'm thinking about. The small lineup is, is going to be the question because that's that's what's going to win them the majority of their games when they're out there with a small lineup and you're going to see how they score the basketball. And the Marcus, I know he has his, you know, reasons of not wanting to play the center, but he's going to have to get over that. You know what I mean? You just signed an extension. You're making 20 plus million a year. You got to get over. If they need you to play center, you got to do what you got to do. And plus, the center isn't the center anymore. Back in the day, I got it. Lamarcus didn't want to go through the whole, you know, he didn't want to bang down there and he didn't want to have to stick another big, big man. Um, but 
today's center is just different. They're not the same anymore. And I think he can really make that transition easier than he's ever done before. Because if he agrees to play the center, then I really feel that gives the Spurs a little bit more flexibility of who they want to put in the starting lineup. You know what I mean? Maybe you want Bellinelli at the, at the three, okay, and Rudy at the four, um, and DeMar at the two, and now you have more shooting. You have a guy who can stretch the floor and Marco Bellinelli in case guys, in t- case teams try to collapse or send a double, you got somebody that's a, a bona fide threat from beyond the arc. Uh, so again, it's, it's just going to be very interesting to see how they play uh, with those lineups. And that's why I feel like, you know, it, that's why I feel that's so much, there's so much fun to be had with this team because there's so many possibilities. Last year, you knew what the deal was going to be. And let's not even forget Patty Mills. And coming off the bench, he's going to be important in that second unit too. But there was so many possibilities. There's so many possibilities this year. Last year, you knew what it was going to be. You knew Kawhi, if he was healthy, Kawhi, Danny Green, if Tony didn't go down, it was going to be him. Model was going to come off the bench. Patty was going to come off the bench. It was predictable. You know what I mean? And maybe that took a little bit of, that ain't predictable this year. It's, it's, it's more fun because there's so many more options that Greg Popovich has, uh, and it's so much more for him to figure out. So it should be a much more fun. Another thing is, is that, you know, I think it's, it's nothing that, and I think it's important to say this, I want to see how Greg Popovich is as a head coach. I mean, listen, the man went through a lot last year. I mean, this, this past, you know, year. Um, I want to see how he is as a head coach. I mean, what type of vibe is he? I don't expect it to be that much drop-off, but, I mean, for somebody to go through what he is still going through, um, how's that going to affect him? You know, how's that going to affect him? And, and I don't – I'm not – like I said, I don't – I hate to talk about it, but it's real. It's a human thing. It's real. You can't pretend that it didn't happen. You can't pretend like he wasn't affected by it. And you can't pretend like things like this in life doesn't affect the way we do our jobs or how we effectively do our jobs. So I think people we're going to pay close attention to that because it's just it's a real thing. We are. And it is hard to talk about, especially because so much of it is internal. And something that I can draw from in my own life is that you can and different people and it depends circumstance. It can even be day by day. Sometimes they're invigorated by the challenges of their job of that that part of their life and sometimes that just it be it feels more secondary and so the 82 game season with the nba it's a lot you know it's a grind and even though teams Mm -hmm. aren't tailoring their strategy for any given opposition san antonio this year part of why you and i are both so excited about watching the team this year is that they have a lot to figure out and popovich there's a distinct possibility i hope it's a likelihood that the chance to impart his approach and his wisdom on a, on a whole n- new group of people, both established stars like DeMar DeRozan and young guys like Lonnie Walker. You know, the ability to do that and to help continue molding DeJounte Murray into the long, the point guard of the future, the point guard of the present, everything for San Antonio. I'm hopeful that that's, you know, that he can gravitate towards that and find joy, find purpose in that. But we have to acknowledge the possibility because it is a, a possibility that, you know, as he's done this for a long time, he's great. Popovich has proven everything that there is to prove as a basketball coach, especially in the NBA. And he has the team USA stuff coming up as well. And, and the Olympics and everything like that soon enough. So, you know, I, I it's, it, you'll have a better sense of that than I will, because I think that will be more of a day-to-day thing, but it's good. And I'm happy you brought it up because it is important to acknowledge that because it's uncharted territory for, for him and this team. And we, we would never wish it on anybody, but you still have to talk about it because we're analysts and it affects the Spurs. 
Absolutely. I mean, and, I, and like I said, it's real. It, it's just real. And I'm sure, I think out of respect, we're going to try not to ask him any questions about it, but I think, you know, he's going to get his fair share. You know, how are you holding up? You know, I mean, when he, when we saw him after he announced, after they announced the trade for, um, you know, Kawhi Leonard and DeMar DeRozan, um, you know, we, you know, I had a chance, we, 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 we saw, he was, he was, Funny, he he reminds you of the old Popovich, but you know even after you know it was all done, you know you could tell he's still, you know going through it. You could tell he still has his good and bad days and stuff like that. And so, uh, it's just it's a real thing. Uh, it really is. But uh, again, and I, that's just something that I I think that is going to be looked upon. Like okay, when we see if Greg Popovich is not is maybe easier on a ref, we're like oh wow. <laughs> you know, like he's calmed down. So you, you know, it's stuff like that. You're gonna watch it. You're gonna watch it, and you watch it because we have to, because we have to see if you know how he's affected as a head coach. And I hope it's not. I hope that he, he, and I don't think it will be. I think Greg is a is a professional enough, and I think he is uh, too damn good as well as private to allow any of this to affect what he's gonna do. And if he felt he really couldn't do it anymore, I think he would have said, "Listen, I'm done. I'm gonna go off into the sunset." But the fact that he's still back. Um, is, and, and the fact that he's back, not only back, but he has young guys that he can teach again. It might even rejuvenate him. Who knows? And we'll also see whether the dynamics on the coaching staff changed at all. I mean, whether, you know, I'm thrilled that Popovich decided to come back, but at some point there is going to be another San, head coach of the San Antonio Spurs. I don't know if that person is on his staff right now. I He probably has a pretty good idea. I don't. He hasn't told me. But how all of that <laughs> works, how all of that works over the next couple of years, you know, do some of those assistants take on a larger, a larger role? Does is it does it there become an heir apparent at, at some point here is is going to be worth watching too but i want to transition into we've we kind of danced around this a couple points but and, mm-hmm. and the answer here is probably going to be we're going to see but do you have a feel yet for what you think is the best five-man group that the spurs can put out there this year um well you know I, if, if lamarcus can buy into playing the center then i think lamarcus aldridge um you know rudy gay at the four demar DeRozan, uh marco bellinelli at the three demar DeRozan at the two or you can switch those and DeJounte Murray, because now Marco gives you the shooting element you have. He's going to let up a little bit on defense. But, again, they've clearly traded defense for offense. Um, and, you know, DeMar, as we said before, you know, um, he's going to do some scoring too. But you have a, a good three-point shoot on the floor. You have somebody who can get his get into the lane, get get the buckets at will when he really wants to, especially when he's his own, DeMar DeRozan. And then when everything is, you know, maybe not working, you got somebody who you can clear it out, throw it down to the post and let him go to work. Uh, and then DeJounte Murray can, you know, even though he's going to be at his shot, his shooting is still improving. Um, you know, he's still a guy who can get to the rim. He's still the most, probably the most athletic guy on this team right now. Um, you know, so you add that versatility to that unit. I think you have a little bit of everything. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's the best five-man group. Now, if they still are, you know, trying to save the whole center thing and Powell comes in, it's going to take away from some things because at that point they become a little bit even more vulnerable on defense. So then you have to go Paul Gasol and Lamarcus and that thrift, you know, four or five. But I really think that Lamarcus should be playing center. Rudy should be playing the four. Um, and then times, you know, Rudy would go back to playing his three. I think that's why they were kind of, you know, experienced with experimenting with him last year on that. So we can kind of get accustomed to it. And I think he'll be a little bit better at it. Uh, but that would be my best five man lineup. And then you got off, coming off the bench, you know, you'll have your, you know, Derek Whites and Patty Millses and, um, you know, Dante Cunningham and uh, uh, Brent Forbes and, uh, Bertans and, you know, Pirtle uh, and Paul Gasol um, and, and Metu. And, you know, you'll have those guys come off the bench and that can be, they can create their own chemistry within that unit. But I, I really think that as a unit, I, I mentioned, 
um, would would be fair. You know? And then you can take Marco out of that and put Dante Cunningham in the starting lineup for defense as well and the and for defense and three point purposes. Um, but and bring Marco off the bench and have him play that Mono Ginobili type little role, even though he's not as good as a creator as Mono was. That's why I feel like he can thrive in that second unit because he doesn't need the ball. He can just kind of play off double teams and you know just kind of come around screens and stuff like that. Um, especially with you know and playing with Lamarcus Aldridge. Uh, but at the same time, you know I I I wouldn't be disappointed if Cunningham was in the starting lineup uh, because obviously he he's a, he's, he can he's a solid defender. He can hold his own. He can shoot the three. But I would think that Bellinelli would be better at that position because he's a better shooter. And no disrespect to Dante Cunningham, but it, it just is what it is. Um, so that's what that would be my guess right now. As training camp goes on, we start to see how guys you know look in preseason, see how guys look, we'll have a better feel for it. But I think coming in, that's the unit I'm going to say, okay, I'll live, I'll start with this. And whoever you know, obviously you know the guys who are playing for jobs. I mean, you know, I don't want to put Rudy in this in this in that category but I almost have to so you got Rudy Bellinelli um and whoever else uh that are playing for those starting unit jobs um and because you know DeMar LaMarcus and DeJounte are going to start so there's two starting unit jobs on the, on, on the line you give it to Rudy because you know he, he's a vet he knows how to, what to do with it uh, but you know he also has to keep it you know and so we'll see but I think there's only two jobs up for grabs in the starting unit and that's you know the small forward position and if LaMarcus plays the power forward I mean the center then it's the power forward position those are the two starting uh, the, the, the the two spots that's up for grabs in the starting unit but I, I, I think what I mentioned to you previously that that would be my starting five. Where they use Bellinelli is going to be such a big question not only because it, I, it, it clears out the identity but because Bellinelli is meaningfully different than any other guy on this team I mean he his strengths and his weaknesses are you know, he's not going to be the best player on the floor, especially if he's in the starting lineup, but teams account for him. You know, we saw the impact that he had on the 76ers last year, and I'm fascinated to see what, where they start with him, where they finish with him. Are those two things the same thing? And, you know, do the young guys really step up? Because if Derek White, I think is more likely than Lonnie Walker for a bunch of different reasons. But if one of those guys steps into Mm -hmm. a role, maybe if that one of those guys is so good that he can be a reserve, then maybe you feel more comfortable starting Bellinelli or or closing with him. However, that's going to work. I'm really interested in that. And uh, kind of a big, big, big picture question that I like talking about here, but kind of before we get into predictions and all that kind of stuff is just going kind of in the big picture relative relative to other NBA teams, what do you think of as the strengths and weaknesses of the Spurs for this coming year? Uh, I mean, the, the strengths are going to be that they are, um, they have the ability to be very athletic. They're very versatile uh, with all the different combo guards that they have. and They can put people at different positions. So, um, you know, and they have a good mixture of youth and experience uh, and they have the arguably the best damn coach in the league. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the big strength. I mean, Greg Popovich, I mean, come on. Um, and they have a guy and, you know, they got two guys and one in the Marcus and DeMar who can, are capable of going off with 20, 25 points each, um, you know, every night, you know, not, it ain't probably going to happen, but I mean, they have that ability. Uh, and that's more than what the Spurs had last year, last year in the starting lineup, you knew there was only one guy that was, you know, that was going to get you 20 plus pretty much every night, you know, and that was Lamarcus Aldridge. And because Kawhi wasn't there, they missed that. It still made it work because everybody else contributed, guys stepped up, especially in, you know, young guys. But um, I think that that's their, you know, a part of their strengths. And the, all another strength is that you have certain young guys like DeJounte Murray, Amber and Forbes, who are coming back with even more experience on how to, you know, survive and play in this league. And I think that's only going to help them down the line. It's only going to help the team. 
Um, so yeah, I think that that's the, the strength. The weaknesses is that they're a new team and you know, it's going to take their time. They don't have that coming out of the gate. They don't have that chemistry that they had. They don't have that familiarity that they had last year. Cause you're incorporating some pretty key pieces back into this, uh, into this team. Um, that, so it's going to take time for them to get all on the same page, particularly DeMar DeRozan and everybody getting on the page with him and he getting on page, everybody else figuring out, you know, which spots he likes the ball and which spots other people like the ball and who he can play off and who he can't play off. And so that might cost you a few games as, as you get that, you know, that, that knowledge down. Um, and obviously you don't have a guy who can, you can, you don't have two guys that you can say, yo, two of two of the top 20 perimeter defenders in the league, the Spurs had last year and Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard, you know, they've had over the last few years. You take that away. Um, and you know, when, when it push comes to shove, who are you going to get to stop Kawhi? I mean, uh, you know, to, to, to stop LeBron James or slow him down. When James Harden is giving you fits, who are you going to get to, to, to kind of keep him in check? You know, when, when, when Kevin Durant is, you know, doing what he's doing, who are you going to get to keep him in check? Kyle Anderson is another one. You lose, you lose him. He was a versatile big man who was pretty damn good on defense. You know what I mean? Who got a, who developed a knack for, you know, getting his hands in the right places to come up with steals and blocks. And, you know, he, he, he put himself through a rigorous workout and a rigorous uh, routine that he gathered last summer where he changed a lot of things about his game so that way he can be more effective and you know damn it it worked look what he got he got a nice little deal from the memphis grizzlies in a tough market you know so um that's going to be the weaknesses you lost a lot of defense you lost a lot of uh of guys who can hold their own on perimeter um and you know if he's healthy you lost the best damn two-way player in the league and you know arguably a top five player if he's healthy he can get back to this 2015-16 version of himself you know what i'm saying you lost that that's gone now you know what i'm saying so um you know how you proceed from that or 16-17 version i should say but how you proceed from that um you know it's it's, it's, it's going to be interesting you know because let's say Kawhi goes and he's ripping it in toronto i mean people gonna be sick man i mean this dude was he was a legit player you know he was a legit player so when you lose all of that you know you, you know that weakness the Spurs may not be as dominant as they was defensively because you know where do you go you know no disrespect to anybody in the roster but you know Kawhi Leonard was and Danny Green that's two damn perimeter good perimeter defenders and I think you would agree with that that's true I absolutely would and you nailed it at the end of there White I, I think the best way that I can phrase this is if this group of perimeter defenders were on a team other than the San Antonio Spurs I would be sounding alarm bells. I mean, they have guys that have capability. I mean, DeRozan does. He hasn't done it yet. I mean, DeJounte is awesome. But if, and, and we account for that. He is a piece of this puzzle. But Bellinelli has had problems. I mean, Patty Mills at this point in his career. Rudy Gay, I think, will be, you know, I think he'll be better. And, and again, this guy ties in with the Spursness of everything. I mean, and then if you're thrown in, depending on how the rotations work out, with somebody like Bryn Forbes. I mean, Forbes can get, he can get abused by bigger guys, depending on what you're asking him to do defensively. There are a lot of different pieces there. Absolutely. And if San Antonio is going smaller more often, well, then they don't have as much of the security blanket. You know, you don't have the guys cleaning up the messes. Not that Powell is a monster defender like he used to be, but he has been, I think, underappreciated at moments in time as a just straight-up rim protector. I mean, going back to that Houston series two years ago, I mean, I guess that was closer to a year ago than two years ago, but one of the biggest things was just having Powell Gasol standing in the middle. So when James Harden got there, there was a big guy in front of him. And so San Antonio, at certain moments, they will have a center out there. At certain moments, they will not. And I think that's a concern for me. The strengths 
coaching slash execution. You can bundle that together. You can separate it, whatever makes you happy. But I mean, Greg Popovich is unbelievable. Even though they had a lot of turnover, I fully expect the Spurs to execute. And then the other strength for them is depth. I mean, San Antonio, night in, night out. I mean, because realistically, most teams don't play more than 10 guys in their regular rotation. It's just hard to do. Mm -hmm. San Antonio is going to have guys outside the rotation who could play on a lot of other teams. And that can bring risks in in terms of chemistry and locker room satisfaction. But San Antonio has done a good job of managing that. And a big part of how they do is that they don't necessarily play everybody in every game. They have scheduled rest. They manage it like that. And the fact of the matter is injuries are going to crop up. That's just what happens in the NBA. So those guys should get a chance. And the fact that they can throw out their 11th, 12th, and 13th guys, much less, I mean, that they're six, seven, eight are strong. Like, I think that's a real competitive advantage for them. And it makes them more resilient. I mean, sure, if Lamarcus, DeRozan, if any of these guys miss extended time, they're going to run into problems. But I think they are, they're more resilient than most teams are. And that's an important strength. We don't know exactly how the West is going to break. But, you know, if if you're accounting for, you know, just the, the risk that happens in any year, San Antonio is better situated to handle it than just about every other team around them. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, you know, I think you know the I, I didn't say the execution part of it, but that's another thing. You know, you know, the Spurs are going to execute, and if they don't, then you know they're going to get it. <laughs> you know, so execution is going to be a major part of it. But um, like I said, man, they they're, they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. I I I I can't foresee them. I mean, I know ESPN and you know the people who predicting who's going to make the playoffs in the West have counted the Spurs out. I don't know why, but um, they're going to be fine. You know, I. I don't want to beat you to the punch of saying, you know, predict this and, you know, I'll wait for you to get to that point, but I, I can't see them missing the playoffs and I can't see them being below a five seed. Yeah. Before we get to predictions, the the last kind of question I want to ask you is just, what do mm-hmm. you think are the most important or the most interesting questions that this team has to answer this season? We've gotten through some of them, but do you think there, is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you think is going to define the San Antonio Spurs this season? Well, put it like this. They got a two-year window with DeMar DeRozan. You know, you got a two-year trial period, you should say. Um, you have to convince him to not only stay for the long haul after his contract's up because, you know, we're assuming that after two years is done, he's going to opt out and be a free agent again. And after what he's experienced this summer, nobody can fault him for saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And if that means going home to L.A. to play in front of my family and friends, I'm going to do it. We know there's no loyalty in this business, so he doesn't owe the Spurs a damn thing. Uh, he's going to come and show up to work and after he, and, and fulfill his deal. And after he fulfills his deal, if he chooses he wants to walk, that's his own prerogative. And nobody can, you know, fault him for that, especially after he was loyal as hell to the Spurs, I mean, to the, to the Raptors, and they decided to trade him. You know, so, he, you know, they got a two-year trial period, two-year window with him where, you know, you have to win enough games with him to, A, convince him that he wants to stay, um, uh, that he should stay, and also convince your team that, uh, and, and whoever, you know, those, those, those in charge have to convince themselves that they can continue to build and they can continue to win with him around for the next five, you know, five, six years, you know, so that's, 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 and it begins now. So you got to make him happy. You got to, you know, he, he can't be, you know, it's going to be hard, but you know, you got to, this guy has to make the all-star team. Like you, you got to make him get to a point where he just feels that, okay, the Spurs are the team that I want to be with. And that's going to be a challenge because, you know, the culture is different here. Things are just a little bit different, a little bit more strict, um, you know, and so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that. I'm looking to see how the Spurs, how they rebound from this PR nightmare that they had with Kawhi Leonard. How, or do they change at all? Do they, are they, do they let up a little bit? Do they let up uh, the way that they want to control things? And do they let up a little bit of their grit? Do they let up more players, you know, and more media have a little bit more access to kind of, 
re- recover from this because as we can all sit here and point the finger, but the Spurs were on record and RCB came out on draft night and said that we, we all could have handled things a little bit differently. And that was him saying, Hey, listen, we messed up too. We don't agree with everything he may have done or, or the way he went about things, but we messed up too. And so if that's the case, how do you fix it? How do you resurrect that? Because now you're looking at this team and this organization and people are asking themselves, okay, well, this is two straight years now that they've had two superstar players that are star players that wanted out. Marcus Aldridge last year, Kawhi Leonard this past year. You know, so what's going on? <laughs> they never had these problems when Tim Duncan was there. Oh, Tim was really the glue. So they got to, they got to, you know, they, I think it's going to be, I'm going to see how, you know, this team gets rebounds from that. You know, and, and how they control, you know, if, if this is if the same old, same old, which it turn guys off and they got to understand something. I know, you know, people want to say, oh, you do it this way at a highway type deal. But guess what? That goes in the NFL. Players have very little control in the NFL. In the NBA, the players run the league. OK, the players run the league in the NBA. And you have to make create an environment where they want to come to your your culture, your your team, and they want to play, and they know that they're not going to be shielded from doing other things that they want to do, you know, or 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 uh, not shielded, but uh, you know that they can't do anything else that they want to do. You can't have that type of environment. Guys have to be loose. They got to feel like you know that it's fun, you know, and that they want to play it. Now they're going to be held accountable if they don't play well, but at the same time, you you want that environment, you know. And I'm not saying the Spurs have a bad environment. I'm just saying, based off of the last two years, will they change anything about how they operate, you know, with media, with you know, letting players do certain things? Like, how, how are they going to do that? Because you know, I don't think anybody would disagree. They went through their own PR nightmare this year. I mean, the Spurs didn't want to be in the headlines like they were last year or this past summer, and last year with Lamar. They don't want to be in the headlines like that. <laughs> That's not the way that they operate. They want to come to work, play basketball, and, and win games. They don't want to be in there for all the other drama stuff, you know. So by you avoid that by being more transparent, by you know sitting up here and um, not trying to you know uh, hide stuff and all that stuff. So I'm I'm curious to see how they rebound from a cultural standpoint. And now that the big three era is over, how they you know how they build that back up again, you know, and and not try to compare guys to Tony Parker and. Miles Milby and Tim Duncan, you know what I mean? Especially on the fan level, you get that era is over. They have to now grow with these young guys that are here. You got to grow with DeJounte Murray. You got to grow with Derek White. You got to grow with Lonnie Walker. You got to grow with Brent Forbes. You got to grow with Dallas Bertans. You got to grow and, 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 and appreciate DeMar DeRozan for what he's going to provide. You know what I mean? You got to do that. And the big three era is over. Um, so that's another one. And, and the other question is, is that I'm, we talked a lot about him, but DeJounte Murray, I think, is going to be a very interesting Keeping an eye on him and monitoring him is not. He is in a very interesting position. On the one hand, we know that he this 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 guy wants to be great, and he's on the verge of he's on the right path. But I notice another area in him, and it's leadership. I notice that you know, and as a point guard, you have to have that leadership. But I'm talking about like team leadership because right now I'm looking in his locker room and I say, okay, who's the team leader? Who's the guy that's going to call the dude out if he ain't doing X, Y, and Z? Similar to what Tim Duncan used to do. Who's the guy that's going to be that guy? On the one hand, you can say, okay, DeMar DeRozan, he's a little bit too, you know, he, he obviously he has, but, you know, this is his first year. He's a new city. LaMarcus is, does more leadership uh, on, on the court than anything else. And, you know, who's going to be that spokesman for the team the way Mono Ginobili was last year? When the Spurs played bad, you knew you can go to Mono Ginobili. He'd keep it real with you. Yeah, we, we sucked. They're better than us. You knew that he was the voice that he gave you what, if we needed a state of the Spurs at any particular point in the season, he, he'd say it. I think DeJounte is, he has the personality and he has the charisma and he has the confidence to be that guy. And I want to see that if that, if that role is up for grabs, if he comes and snatches it. Because again, it's more than X's and O's 
with a basketball team. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into what makes a basketball team successful and good, especially during a grind of the 82-game schedule annual to the playoffs. Leadership, human element stuff, you know, uh, relationships within the team, relationships within the locker room, okay? Who is the leader of this team? It ain't Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich is a leader organization, but he can't be the leader in that locker room. The players have to be the leader. Who's that guy that's going to be the voice? Or who? what guys are going to be the voice? Who's going to be the guy? That's what I'm interested to see because they have to be somebody that's going to step up and, and keep it real and say it. The Spurs are, are playing like garbage, that they playing like garbage. They ain't no sugarcoating it. Don't try to mess with people's eyes. Let us let, tell us what we already know, but we want to hear it from you that y'all accepting it. And if you're playing good, let, let us know. Who's going to be the guy, the spokesman of that locker room? And I think DeJounte Murray has a very, very good opportunity to do so. And I hope he does. That's a great point. And it gets into what I was thinking of as kind of like the big question with this team is the Spurs have been this exception as an organization for such a long time, dodging a lot of the drama. And the off-court stuff is is absolutely true. I mean, you think about just having Tim Duncan, having David Robinson, having Manu, and, and, every, and just everything, having pop there that they've had. But I think there's also the exception that the Spurs have been on the court. I talked about this a little bit with the defense and that, that there would be alarm bells if this was any other team. And so I think we're going to see both questions answered at the same time, which is, are the Spurs still the exception? Are do, do, do gravity as it applies in the NBA, does it apply to them? Or maybe it's Popovich, maybe it's something even more complicated than that. D- does that still hold? Now, I like that you brought up leadership. I think that's a good point and accountability and, and where everything falls from there. And so there's sometimes separate questions on court, off court. Sometimes they're the same. It, it really depends on the team and the personality and, and how the communication structures work. But I'm, I'm really interested to see how that works out for this team and also how that works moving forward, because it's a very different thing if DeJounte Murray takes that lead because the expectation is he'll be a spur for a long time versus if it's DeRozan Mm -hmm. or LaMarcus where, you know, those two guys might be around longer. We don't know, but they're definitely around for the next two years or so. So who takes the reins is important in terms of where this team goes. Absolutely. And like I said, that's the question that I'm I'm looking forward to finding out the answer to. Because I don't know as of yet. Nobody knows as of yet, you know, but it's going to be very interesting. Is it Rudy Gay? Remember, and, and another guy who I think don't, Please, people who listen to this podcast and your Spurs fans, don't underestimate the departure of Danny Green. Okay, don't. I remember I wrote a, wrote a story last year about what it takes to coach for Greg. You know, what it takes to be coached by a guy like Greg Popovich. And the one thing that was the common uh, answer that you would get is that everybody can't be coached by Greg Popovich because he requires a certain toughness in him and you because he's going to get on you and you have to be able to willing to you have to be able to take it. And everybody can't take that. Eagles in the league and they feel like maybe they're too, you know, uh, too too established stature wise in this league to be yelled at like that. You know, look at everyone Al Jefferson when he went off on, you know, Steve Clifford and you know and, and then Charlotte. Um, you know, guys, you know, the the Morris twin, you know, when he went off on Jeff Hornacek, you know, so that doesn't happen in San Antonio, at least not in public. Maybe on closed doors in the past, but it doesn't happen in San Antonio. So now everybody can play for him. Uh, and Danny Green was one of the guys who could play for him because he took a lot from Greg Popovich. Even when Danny didn't do anything wrong, he had to take the heat because Greg knew he could take it. Now who takes it? It's Mono Ginobili. And Mono Tony and, you know, Tim, you watch their interviews over the years, you can tell them, like, Greg would come to them and yell at him for something Mono did. You know what I mean? Like, who's going to be that guy that Greg Popovich can go to and yell at when somebody else is messing up and he needs to let off frustration? He needs to identify those guys, too. You know? So, like I said, it's just, it's more than an X and no thing. It's, it's who is going to take certain roles on this team of being. I remember a story Kyle Anderson told me, and this is what, what the greatness of Tim Duncan's leadership is that they were in Chicago one day, 
then Kyle had a, I guess he made an error, and Greg Popovich, I mean, he ringed on him like it was just crazy. So obviously being a young guy, you know, Kyle Anderson was a little bit taken aback and, you know, a little bit upset because, you know, he just got screened on and, you know, for a mistake. And, you know, he's, it's, it, it takes a lot for a young guy like that to do it. Now, Kyle took it because he's a pro, but, you know, you could tell it didn't sit well with him. And Tim Duncan saw this. Tim didn't go on a plane and try. He let Kyle have his time, his, his moments. And then after they got off the plane, Tim Duncan walked up behind Kyle Anderson, put his arm around him and said, hey, man, rub it off. It's another day. It's another game tomorrow. Tim knew that that affected him. He knew. He saw his teammate. He's like, yo, man, but I know. Rub it off. When 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 Greg Popovich was yelling at guys, who would be on that bench putting his head and wrapping him around? It was Tim Duncan. He was consoling his teammates because he was like, I know it's tough, but we got to take it. I'm here. We, we know. I know. There would be times where Greg Popovich would come out and say how the Spurs play like crap, and Tim Duncan would be the only one who says, well, I don't agree with Pop, but we got to get stuff together. You know, he wasn't scared. He wasn't shook. But that's the leadership that you need. You need, and that's why I said DeJounte Murray might be that guy. It's a key moment last year, if everybody recalls. I'm sure you do if your Spurs fans listen to this podcast, where they were playing. I think it was Toronto, as a matter of fact, when, you know, Serge Ibaka and LaMarcus got into it. But I believe that's the game. But, you know, afterwards, you know, LaMarcus, you know, got it. He was upset, and Greg Popovich was trying to come over to, you know, you know, get LaMarcus. And what did John Murray do? He weighed Greg Popovich off, so yeah, I got this coach, and talked to his teammate. Told him, look, I'm coming right back to you. I'm going to give the ball right back to you in the polls. You're going to go right back and do the work. That's leadership right there. That's a young guy saying, coach, I got this. We on the floor. This, this is our time. You step up. You, you, you go back over there. I got this. Young guy did that. How many young guys would do that to a guy like Greg Popovich? Not many. Not many. It would be great if he can if he can really take that on. And I'm not sure San Antonio anticipated needing somebody to do it when he was this young. But if, if DeJounte, I mean, we've seen it, both of us have at various levels in the NBA, you know, that leadership can come from any age. You know, like there are lots of good examples like Magic and plenty of other ones of guys who, who really did Absolutely. take it on. And, you know, it's not as co- necessarily as common in this one and done era, but it certainly can be. And especially if it comes from point guard, that can be really useful. Let's get into predictions. And so the way that I like to separate this, and this is how Nate's done it on these shows for years, is so starting out with the most likely, like the predicted the predicted record. And then we could talk a little bit about not the absolute best case and worst case, but let's start with just what you think is the most likely record for the San Antonio Spurs this year. Well, you know, I don't know. Clear, I always leave myself an out because there are going to be games where, you know, Spurs play good, but they the other teams playing good too is coming down to a buzzer beater, right? And so... You got to account for those games. So I always say you got to go five and five in those type games where a three point. I mean, Victor Oladipo Spurs beat them in Indiana in Indiana last year, and Victor Oladipo hit a freaking miracle shot and they lost. <laughs> you know what I mean? So stuff like that you got to you know take account of and um, you know late runs and you know up, got up by twenty. You think you got the game in the bag? Another team comes back and beats you. So. You know, a, a guy like the Lakers, who, you know, the Spurs should have absolutely annihilated last year. Lonzo Ball's coming and giving them the business. You know what I mean? So they're always going to be those games like that. And so because they have a team, it's going to be time. they got to work out the kinks on certain things. I'm going to say 45 to 50, possibly. Um, maybe maybe and even in the 43 to 49 range, possibly. Um, but, you know, usually the Spurs are sitting there flirting around 50. Anything over 50 is going to be a damn good a season for them because of all the new faces that they incorporated and all the things that they got to get used to. I mean, we thought last year when you had Carmelo Anthony and Paul George to the Oklahoma City Thunder that that was a team that was going to just go out and, you know, they was going to just be great, right? You know, and, and look what happened. I mean, did they, if I'm not mistaken, they finished with less wins than they did the previous year before those other two got there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So 
you know, you gotta, you gotta, that has to be taken into account as well. That, that chemistry issue. Um, so, you know, I, you know, last year they were 147 games and this was without DeMar DeRozan and they didn't have the firepower that they have now. So you would say that if they can get things going, but the West is deeper this year. Uh, so, you know, and, and to a certain extent, so is the East, you know, you lose LeBron James, you act Watt Leonard though, and other teams have gotten better as well. So, um, you know, Gordon Hayward and, Kyrie Irving's coming back. So um, I would say, you know, they'll be flirting around the 50 mark again this year. And I think, again, I don't see them finishing below five um, uh, in the West. And it's going to be a very, very competitive, uh, a competitive year for them. Um, you know, a competitive season amongst the teams in the West, I should say, even more competitive than last year, because, you know, you look at it, <laughs> there are about, you know, <laughs> there are about a good 13 teams that can make the playoff, you know, in, in, in the West this year. Add the Lakers back to the mix, you know. I mean, Denver is going to be there, you know. That's that's already, what, 10 already? Uh, the Clippers were flirting last year. I mean, what what if they are actually, you know, on the verge and that can be that? They're going to be fighting to be there. They're going to be there at the end, you know what I mean? And, and you know, what's Memphis? You know, can they make noise? I mean, I know they're young. It's not Memphis, excuse me, Dallas. You know what I mean? I know they, can they make some noise? I know they're a little young, but they got a nice little draft pick. Dirk's coming back. You know, they still got some, some key pieces there that can make some, uh, some noise. So, you know, and, and then you can't forget about the teams who did make it, you know, the Portland's, the Utah's, the, 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 the Timberwolves and the, and the, the New Orleans of the world. So it's going to be a deep run, man. Spurs are going to have their hands cut off on just like everybody else in the West with the exception of maybe Golden State, because, you know, Golden State is going to go out and they're going to do what they do. But everybody else below Golden State, even Houston, who did finish number one in the conference last year, they're going to have their hands full. It's going to be tough, man. That's why it's critical that you take care of home court um, this season. You know, I remember a, a, a Western Conference assistant coach told me that last year, and you know, I I, I, I believe them, and it came came back to be true. You got to take care of your home court, man, because you can't, you know, you can't just be. And the Spurs know that the hard way. On the road, they didn't do as well. At home, they were a little bit, they were better. But you got to be able to take to protect your home court. And when you have a team up on the road, finish it, because especially in the West, those West road games, you got to finish it. You know, you got to finish it. You got to, you can't be playing around. You know, you got to take care of those road games as well a fair share of them but protect your own home court too don't be letting no bad teams and that you and wins that you're supposed to have come into your building and beat you okay don't do that because those are precious wins that you need in the west six seven six seven eight nine ten home losses could very well be to be the difference between a playoff berth and a draft lottery you know what i mean like it's it's it's, it's that big so um like i said they'll be teetering around that 50 wins mark Something else worth keeping in the back of everyone's mind here is that it took a lot to get into the West playoffs last year, and a lot of the teams mm-hmm. that ended up in the kind of that bottom mix were pretty hurt last year. I mean, Minnesota yeah. was fighting for a spot. Jimmy Butler missed a bunch of time. Paul Millsap missed a bunch of yeah. time. So if you think yep. about those teams being better, the Lakers are obviously now in this mix. We don't know how the injury bugs can go because it's very possible that t- good teams lose good players again. That, that can always happen. But my instinct for San Antonio is that they end up in the high 40s. If I had to pick a single number, I would, I'm going to say, I'll, I guess I'll say 47. I could easily see it being 48, 49. I mean, it could go a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. I'm not completely sold on the defense yet. If they take a little bit of a step back there, they'll be, I think they'll be better offensively. So maybe those two things offset. You know, they were pretty middle of the road in terms of clutch last year. Could see, you know, that that could end up being the variance that defines whether the where they go in the season. Best case scenario for me, 
probably talking low 50s just because with how good the West is, that's a lot of wins. You know, you're beating a lot of good teams if you're winning 52. So I'll say, you know, so realistic best case, yeah, I'll... 52, I'm fine with that. You know, that's a lot of wins. For reference, that's what Philly did last year, but that was in the East, and the East is not the West. Mm -hmm. And then, worst case, I still expect them to be over 500. It would surprise me with, you know, if, if we're talking reasonable health, if they have... DeJounte, LaMarcus, and DeRozan, even if they have two of those three for a lot, I would expect them to be over 500. So I'll say, you know, like kind of the worst case, like 44, maybe the offense never really gets there. Defense takes a step back. That to me is a slightly above 500 team. And the last question I wanted to ask you, it's Spurs related, but it's not necessarily Spurs. We've, you kind of, we've, we've talked about it a couple points. It is an elephant that's not in the room anymore, but what are you expecting from Kawhi Leonard this year? Like if you, if you had to say, you know, I'm not saying points per game or anything like that, but just what what mm-hmm. do you expect? Mm-hmm. It was such a weird year last year. He's not, you yeah. know, he's not going to be on your beat this time. But what do you expect? Um, you know, listen, he has to obviously. He we talked about how the Spurs have to, you know, kind of get from under the PR nightmare that they suffered, and well, so does he. You know, um, first of all, I, I expect him to play this season. That's the key thing, and I expect him to play a majority of the season. I'm sure he'll have his times when he sits out or miss a game or two here because it's something small. But, um, you know, I think that I can envision him getting back to that place that he was in 2016-17 season. He has all the, the, the motive in the world to be able to make that happen because he'll, he's also fighting for, A, his respect back, and B, if it's not the respect back, fighting to say, okay, you know what, this guy still is damn good. And also C, fighting for um, – that contract that you know he's going to want to sign after he pretty much opts out next summer if he chooses to do so which right now i think he probably will but uh i think he's going to be hungry man i think he's going to be eager to prove to everybody how good he is in this league and he has the opportunity to do so to do so um i think he's going to get back to that version of the Kawhi that we saw in 2016-17 but maybe even a little bit better I do. Um, and should he fail at that, and I'm wrong, uh, it's going to cost him. It's going to cost him, you know, because uh, it may not get as big as a contract as he was anticipating because you got to prove it on the court. Um, so, you know, I, listen, he, he, he's healthy. Apparently he's ready to go, uh, and he has to make it count from day one. And if he can do that, I think the Toronto Raptors is going to be a good damn team. Very good. They'll have their fair stru- stru- share of struggles because, I mean, listen, Nick Nurse is no Dwayne Casey. He's no Brad Stevens. He's no Greg Popovich. He's the, he's a head coach in his league. But I think that's going to be where they – where what the question Toronto is, is how how is he going to be as a head coach? And can you control the personalities on that team, one of which Kyle Lowry, who I know both from Philly and, you know, he's going to speak his mind. You know, as a coach, you got to be able to hold the reins down as well. Um, and, you know, so it's going to be interesting. It really will. I mean, and, and they, they got two guys and Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard that's going to really help the Toronto Raptors team grow. LeBron James is gone. He has no excuse anymore. If you're not as good, okay, um, then it's your fault. Uh, so, you know, I'm expecting Kawhi to do some really great stuff. I'm expecting him to make another all-star team. I'm expecting him to uh, be dominant. I am. And he has to be. There's no in-between. He has to be. Wilder has to be good because everything that he did, everything that they wanted to do and getting out of San Antonio and moving on, if you're not dominant again, that's going to cost you on your reputation. It really would. 
you know, so you have to be. And I think he knows that. And I think that that's I, I think that that's what we'll see from him. It is amazing that someone with Kawhi Leonard's resume has as much to play for at this stage in his career as he does. But he does. That that is what well, this that's is. what you get when you, when yeah. you act out of one of the best. You know, that's yep. what you get. You know, so, you know, I, he he, made, he made that bed. So he better be ready to, to lie in it. And he can. I mean, I think well, people... let's say he didn't make the bed. Let's say that room service made the bed. Okay? Either way, he's, he's in the bed. A, yeah, he's still, yeah he, exactly. You know, this is his career, and this is the move that he made, and everybody always talks about oh, Uncle Dennis this, Uncle Dennis that, and I always tell him, listen, first of all, Kawhi Leonard is a grown man, okay? Nothing was done without his approval. Nothing was done without his knowledge, okay? So he knew. They're not, he's not just some puppet, you know? He knew, and this is what he wanted. If he said, no, I want to stay in San Antonio, he would still be in San Antonio. But he wanted out. He got it. For what reasons? I'm sure more will come out down the road about, you know, more stuff that happened. You know, I'm sure you'll be saying it pop up on the timeline, report Spurs, such and such with Kawhi Leonard last year. Report Kawhi Leonard had a fight. I'm sure it might come out again down the line. I really don't particularly care about it anymore because it's over. It's done. He's moved on. They moved on. Like, let bygones be bygones. But, you know, as we said, this is what he wanted. And now you got to go out and you got to prove that it was the right move for your career and that you're still dominant. And if not, be prepared to deal with the consequences of your reputation not being as strong as it once was when it comes to being a top-tier player in the league because you can lose your status real fast in this league when people talk about that top five, top ten. It's all about who's hot at the moment, okay? And right now, you know, we've given Kawhi the benefit of the doubt, but he understands he has to be what he has to be. And, again, I fully expect him to be that. I think he's hungry. I think he's ready. I think he's ready to prove um, that, you know, he, he's still that guy. You know, last year was a bad injury for him, but we've seen guys come back from those type of things all the time. I mean, how many times have we heard when Kevin Durant was going through his foot injury that he'd never be the same player? Oops, sorry, two-time NBA MVP. <laughs> how many times have we heard with Russell Westbrook with his meniscus problems that he won't be back to the same player? What? MVP. Like, so technology and, you know, science is better. So I don't think that that's going to be a problem, you know, with the whole injury thing. Um, so now that you're healthy, you got to go out and you got work to do. Yeah, I completely agree. And to a point, the Spurs and Kawhi are going to be connected at the very least for this year. But what I'm so intrigued and excited about is that both are important and fascinating stories in their own right. And what San Antonio, I mean, we talked about the big questions this year and the, whether Spurs magic still exists, whether whether it's in a lesser form or it's just as strong as it ever was, or maybe that was Tim and Manu and David Robinson and everybody else. That That's going to be a, a really interesting question, not only for the Spurs, of course, it's absolutely massive for them, but for the entire NBA, you know, like can a coach can a system survive this sort of turnover you know it happens throughout the league and so i i think that's one of one of the things i'm going to be watching this whole season yeah i mean like it's going to be a whole bunch of storylines to watch the spurs and you know Kawhi are going to have their own I minute mean, that game that Kawhi comes back to san antonio that thing's gonna be a madhouse i mean it's gonna be crazy and then when toronto goes you know and you know they post the spurs in toronto that's gonna be crazy too so um, you know, it's it's, it's going to be pretty big, man. But that's only one of many storylines around the league. You know, obviously it's one of the top ones, but you know, you got so much stuff to do. It's it's almost making my head hurt to think about it. You know what I mean? Like it's all the stuff that's ready to come up. It's like I'm not finished with summer vacation yet. Don't go anywhere. Where are you going? Come back. I don't feel like doing this. And then so you get that. I already got the emails first. You know, credential stuff. Okay, now I got to submit that and got to do it by certain times. Like okay, it's really ready to happen now. I don't want to. You know, like I I just don't. I 
I got into my routine already. Like I, I like being lazy. <laughs> and plus it's not fair to me because I had to go through a, a, a longer period of the summer because, you know, chasing Kawhi stuff. So everybody yep. else who was all yep. draft stuff done and summer league stuff done, I had to go through extended period. You know what I mean? Like, come on. It's fair <laughs> you, had, to me. you had to do, you had no. to do a little bit of summer school. So it, it's coming yeah, on even more quickly. I had to do summer school. But, but right. you know what? Felony class. I, this, this next month is always tough, but as soon as the games start, I'm just ready to be back in again because then we're actually answering questions and we're really learning stuff and that this year i mean san antonio in particular there's a lot that we're going to be learning and so like i i get sometimes i get bitter and i get frustrated in this last couple weeks where you're you're just kind of you it's kind of like you can see if for people who go on road trips the last hour is often the hardest part because you're sitting there and you're like it's not fun yet we're not in the fun part yet and the novelty is already worn off and so you're kind of sitting there and you're like, well, I can't really appreciate what I'm doing. Like, I, I, I as like you, I enjoy the summer, but I'm re- I'm ready to roll now. Like that, I've I've already made the transition that it looks like like you're not you're not there yet. And I, I wish I was in your place because that would be more fun. I would be you know enjoying this a little bit more. But you know, w- once it's here, I'll be ready to roll with it, and it's gonna be so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Hey man, no problem. I you know I ain't gonna keep it. I'm gonna keep it real with you. Like I, I'm not. I ain't ready for it, but <laughs> I gotta be. So yeah, <laughs> it'll be fun. Thanks again to Jabari Young for taking the time to come on. You should definitely read his San Antonio work at the Express News and definitely follow him on Twitter, Jabari J. Young, J-A-B-A-R-I-J-Y-O-U-N-G. Definitely going to have some great stuff coming down the pike. Really looking forward to his coverage this year. Still have the whole Grizzly segment with Chris Harrington, but first, get to hear Nate's voice again because we can talk about our friends at SeatGeek. Football is back. And SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every game all season long. Actually, today, right when this is running, I'm going to sumo wrestling in Japan. And it just reminded me, oh man, this is just such a miserable process to try to find tickets when you don't have SeatGeek. I went to like five different sites. I didn't know what I was doing to find something in Japan. There are all these extra fees. I was trying to use Google Translate on these Japanese websites. I couldn't figure it out. And I probably ended up paying way more than I should have, frankly. But with SeatGeek, that's not going to happen. SeatGeek aggregates ticket selling sites together. So they save you time and effort that way. You don't have to go to a bunch of different sites worried that you're not finding the best deal. And then they also grade every ticket based on value. So if you're not necessarily familiar, whether it's a concert, it's comedy, theater, sports, obviously, as well football as we mentioned so easy with that big green dot to find the best valued tickets in the arena and if for some crazy reason you are a downtown listener who hasn't tried SeatGeek yet which would be remarkable because they were our first sponsor way back in the summer of 2015 and continue to be a sponsor because so many downtown listeners that use their product you can get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase with that familiar code, CAPSPACE. Easy to remember, we talk about CAPSPACE all the time on the program. That's promo code CAPSPACE for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Let me know with that CAPSPACE code that you came from us. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. Next up is my conversation with Chris Harrington, columnist, writer, and editor now at the Daily Memphian, which actually launches today. For those of you who listened to it on Monday, a couple days ago, for those of you who listened to it a little bit later on, very excited about that new venture. And we have a great conversation about the Memphis, where they are right now, all the changeover that's happened with the team, and kind of figuring out how to calibrate this year off of what they've done in prior years. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
the way these are formatted, usually we start out with how was the team last year? And my feeling on this, and I want to run this by you, is that I feel like last year isn't really the representative sample that we're looking for. With Memphis, it's probably good to look two years ago. I mean, obviously this team is meaningfully different than they were two years ago, and we don't know if Gasol and Conway are going to play about 70 games each. But do you agree with me that at least that gets closer to estimating what the Grizzlies will be than last year? Yeah, probably so. I mean, it's sort of hard. I mean, typically with a team, unless there's been major changes, and there's been a lot of roster turnover, but not among the the very, very core players as much. And so typically, you know, you would look at last year's record or more likely last year's, the previous year's expected wins, and that is totally meaningless, you know, for the Grizzlies because their record last year, they may, they may, may very well have not been a good team, but their record was artificially deflated. Um, they were they were seven and five when Mike Conley and Marcus All both were on the floor together, and and that's a small sample, but it was against a tough schedule. I mean, they beat the Rockets twice, they beat the Warriors, they beat the Pelicans. Um, that pace would probably not have continued. They probably would not have been a playoff team, even if they got a normal Gasol Conley season. But when Conley went down, they became bad, and then when they made you know the organizational commitment to uh, maximize draft position, aka tank, um, that even artificially deflated it even more. I mean, they they were in tank mode by January last year. And so uh, it's hard to generalize from their record last season, I would agree. Yeah, and anybody who watched pretty much, I mean, I I agree with you that it shifted in around January, but that last month of the year was pretty spectacular, where it was even sometimes a circumstance. If a guy plays well, I think there was a game where Marcus Gasol was playing well, and then he just didn't play at all in the fourth quarter (laughs) because they wanted to. It takes an awful lot. It takes an awful lot to get Marcus All to sit down, right? Like, I mean, he, he, he even with an injury, it's hard to get him to sit down. And so he was fuming for most of the last season, but especially by the end, it, it sort of it, it became a farce. I mean, it was what it was. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you're right. If you look at the year before, they won they won 43 games, and that was they got a reasonably a reasonably full healthy season from from Gasol Conley. But the rest of the roster was sort of a disaster, and so that got them to sort of 43 wins. And, and I don't know if 43 wins is, is what you expect this season, but it's probably closer to an expectation or a baseline than certainly the 22 is. Yeah, I would agree with that. But let's go through some of the changes that happened during this offseason. I mean, we're not going to think about this as a two-year gap because that gets a little bit too complicated. But so they right. lost... Tyreek Evans, who was, I would argue, their best player, you know, in terms of value added last season in a in a largely lost year. And then everybody else right. they lost to me didn't really move the needle. I mean, Deontay Davis, Macklemore, Jarrell Martin, all those guys aren't doing it. Well, so, go ahead. The story of their offseason really was they didn't, there wasn't much they could do to raise their short-term ceiling. And so what they did was, with the, with their draft pick, with their lottery pick, they took the best long-term prospect they could get, who they believed to be Jaron Jackson Jr. There was some fear, and I had some fear that they would, you know, think short-term on the draft pick, and you you try to, you know, take, trade down for a veteran or a guy who could help you more immediately. They thought long-term, long-term on the draft pick, but the rest of their off-season, since they couldn't raise their ceiling, was basically about raising their floor. I mean, they, they really focused on adding sort of a, a, a foundation of veteran competency to the back half of the roster that they didn't have last season. And so you're right. You see like guys going out like Deontay Davis and Ben McLemore and Jarrell Martin, who were frankly sort of low IQ players, not fully formed, guys you couldn't rely on. And you go out and replace those guys with sort of, you know, solid citizen 
dependable types, you know, re- maybe replacement level or in some cases above that, but your Garrett Temples and, and, and Shelvin Max and Omri Caspies of the world. And for a team that does want to be competitive this season, I think they saw that as a way to sort of shore up sort of the, the, the downside of their, of their season. Well, it made sense for a couple of different reasons. One of them is getting players at the, you know, kind of the two, three, four. Those are positions that are generally scarce, but right. specifically in terms of the Grizzlies. I mean, that was a, I mean, Dylan Brooks played the most minutes of any rookie last year. That gives you a, a sense right. of, of where their perimeter rotation was. And then the other part is at a certain juncture, if Memphis wants to be competitive, they have to bet that Gasol and Conley are going to be reasonably healthy. And so right. if that's the case, then you want to make sure that you have depth other places. And and I, I like to think of it for what Memphis did, and, and there are a couple other teams in this both over the last couple of years, where they got a lot of bites at the apple. I'm not completely convinced that any single player in terms of the near term is going to be, you know, like a game changer necessarily for the Memphis Grizzlies, but getting multiple guys who can contribute, who can be potentially a part of the solution is likely the best way to handle that situation when you don't have amazing resources. I mean, if you have the ability to get really good players, then then that's a different question. But Memphis had the mid-level exception. They had, you know, they could make a little bit of wiggle room with trades, which they did in various circumstances. And then with draft picks, they, they did the right thing, which is going for the best long-term players. And there is a chance, you know, that Jaron Jackson, certainly there's a chance that he doesn't end up being the best long-term player who was available, but they made a reasonable bet. And I'm really, like you, I'm very happy with that, that they went in that direction as opposed to a more immediate contributor. And I'm sure that was hard because Conley and Gasol, you know, they're they're better now than you would expect them to be moving forward. And Memphis, and I think this player is going to define that change, you know, they didn't really have a lot of pieces together for whenever the rebuild happens. They didn't really have a lot to say, oh, well, this is who it's going to be around. So I'm happy they made a pick more in that vein than anything else. Yeah, and with their mid-level, they made the point of trying to get someone who could bridge to the next era. Um, whether they're right or wrong on Kyle Anderson, they wanted to they wanted to sign a younger player. They wanted to lock up a younger player on a four, player on a four year deal. They didn't want to do another. You know, they could have gotten Tyreek Evans anyway back because of the, Indiana ended up paying him you know more than mid level, and I don't think he was going to you know come to Memphis even on a four year deal probably for a mid level. But they could have tried to get, go get Wayne Ellington or go, get, you know, there were veteran players they could have brought in on shorter term deals. And their goal from the very beginning of free agency was, can we lock up a young player we like on a four-year deal? And so the idea of Kyle Anderson was they think he can help them now. I mean, you know, he, he was he started almost all season on a 40, I guess a 47, something like that, wins first team last year. So they think he can help a step in and help right away. But they really like the idea of, you know, three years down the line when we're moving past Gasol Conley, what do we have? And they didn't have much. And so you add Jaron Jackson, Kyle Anderson, a 24-year-old on a four-year deal, you know, maybe Dylan Brooks builds on that. You start to see finally, after years and years of sort of failing to to, to sort of 
to sort of the, basically I, I've, I've called it the cavalry that never that never came. Basically, for years they failed to sort of build that that younger group of players coming up behind, you know, Gasol, Conley, Randolph, Allen, and so now even though they're still trying to win with Gasol and Conley, they feel like they're finally putting some pieces together that can transition them to whatever the next thing is. And you hope that Jaron Jackson is a cornerstone of the next thing, but maybe Kyle Anderson, maybe Dylan Brooks can be pieces of the next thing, right? That has to be the idea. And with Jackson, my read on the situation, having watched film on him for this podcast, was that his long-term position is center. I think that's, you know, what he... But incidentally... Right. He played power forward at Michigan State. I would anticipate he will play plenty of power forward this year for Memphis, and that's fine. I, th- I think you can make that work long term. And I, I think what you're going to see with him is he's going to evolve over the next two or three years from your third big to your starting power forward to your starting center. I think I think the idea is that is you know he's he's going to supplant Gasol as the starting center on this team eventually, but they're going to work up to that, and I, I think you will see him. My guess is he'll start coming off the bench behind Gasol and Green. Maybe he forces his way into the mix earlier, but I think he'll come off the bench initially as the third big. And I think at some point he's going to be the starting power forward on this team in the short term and then eventually the starting center. Um, I think they believe he can sort of play both. And they also, they're a little wary of the wear and tear and the banging of him at center at the beginning of his career. I mean, this is a a guy who, I mean, as we record, he's still 18 years old. He'll be 19 in a couple weeks. Um, He's still sort of, you know, growing into his body. And so I think he'll be more of a combo big initially, but eventually I think he'll be the center on the team. And that fits in pretty well with what they're envisioning in terms of competing a little bit now and then building into something in the future. I mean, if if Jackson earns the spot, sure, then you can put him in there, slot him in. And if he doesn't, Playing him as a backup big is is useful as well. I mean, hopefully he gets some minutes with the main guys just so you see how it works. But over the course of an 82-game season, that should be doable even if he's coming off the bench. So Yeah, I, mean, I think you're looking at primary, uh, primarily a three-man big rotation with Gasol, Green, and Jackson. They'll play much more small ball than they have in the past. I, one of the things I like about Kyle Anderson is that they, they see him playing some four uh, maybe a lot of four eventually as Jaron Jackson grows into being a center. I think that, uh, the future of the Grizzlies could be a lot of Jaron Jackson at the five and Kyle Anderson at the four as the roster evolves. Um, you know, Caspi can play the four. If Chandler Parsons can play it all, he can play the four. So they'll, they'll play smaller a lot over the course of the season, and that'll help Jaron Jackson, you know, find minutes at the five. But, uh, you know, whether he starts or comes off the bench, I think he's going to be a 20-minute-plus game 20 minute plus guy like from day one pretty much you mentioned it briefly but i since i'm thinking about it I might as well ask you what is the feeling right now about chandler parsons availability functionality for this upcoming season it, it you know it's hard to say there's all the rumors that you know maybe he went to germany and and, and did you know did that you know the, the blood spinning or whatever it is he's, he's he's put out the instagrams of himself dunking but so he did that last season too last summer too the one thing I'll say for Parsons is that he was sneaky decent last year when he played. His first year with the Grizzlies, he was probably the worst player in the entire NBA. Uh, and I'm, that's not even an exaggeration. Like He was probably the worst player in the league that first year with the Grizzlies. Last season, his shooting percentages and his, his scoring rate was pretty much in line with his pre-Grizzlies career norms, you know, maybe a little below that, but pretty close to that. 
Um, the problem is that he he didn't play that much. I mean, he after two years he hasn't he hasn't topped thirty five games and he hasn't topped nineteen minutes per game. Um, I don't know if you're ever going to see the minutes per game go up much from that, but I think if the Grizzlies could get last year's Chandler Parsons for sixty games instead of thirty five. Um, at that effectiveness rate, at 20 minutes a game off the bench, I think at this point it's such a sunk cost that I think you would take that. I think you would be happy to get that at this point. And so, you know, I think the hope is that he's he's a rotation player, he's a bench player, and if in you know in in, in Omri Caspi, that's sort of a guy who can sort of fill in for for Parsons when Parsons is not there. Um, but I, I think the expectations are low for for Parsons. I think the hope is that he's you know he's he's a useful rotation player for more than half the season. I think I think that that would be you'd be happy to get that. That seems like a reasonable goal. And Memphis has more options at the forward spots now, so it, they aren't going to be relying right. on it as much. But anything that he brings is certainly an additive, and that leads into the other guy that I want to talk about. Even though I think of Garrett Temple more as a two than anything else. Another capable vet who can be a part of the rotation, who I think will be enthusiastic if Memphis starts out the season competitive, that he'll actually be on a a good team again. It's been a little bit because of that weird odyssey in Sacramento. But I could see Temple being a useful part of Memphis's rotation and somebody who's a little bit more flexible in terms of whether he where he's playing, just kind of a throw him in and he can bring some stability to the five men that are on the floor. To me, he's like a much better. He's a little bit different positionally, but he's like a much better version of Andrew Harrison, who the Grizzlies have had the past couple of years. Where you don't really, you know, they haven't really expected Andrew Harrison to play that much, and they keep looking up. And he's always in the game. He, he's actually here's a trivia a trivia question for you: The Grizzlies starting two guard each of the past two opening nights with Andrew Harrison, um, which was not the plan. It just sort of happened. Um, and Garrett Temple, to me, is a guy who, even if you don't plan for him to be in the rotation, because maybe you have hopes for, you know, Dylan Brooks and, and Wayne Selden and Marshawn Brooks, and you, you, they have lots of other options, right? And all the other options are theoretically a higher upside than Garrett Temple if everything pans out. But I think you're going to look up, and Garrett Temple's going to be playing a lot because you can depend on him. That 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 the best case scenarios with a lot of these other players aren't going to pan out, and Garrett Temple is always there, and he's always playing quality defense, and he's knocking down open shots, and the coach likes him, and they've the teammates like him, and he can handle the ball a little bit, and he's just sort of a safety valve, right? I mean, they have plenty of other options, but he's probably the most reliable of all of them. And so I think you could easily project him not in the rotation at all, but I think you'll look up and he'll be playing a lot of minutes this season. The single easiest way to predict whether a player is going to have more minutes than than some people expect or less is whether it is reasonable for the coach to trust that player. And so veterans, right, right. guys like Garrett Temple, they get in the lineup more because even J.B. Vickerstaff just got the head job full-time. It's still important to them to play guys that they're comfortable with on the floor, that they're, you know, game in, game out. It's a long grind no matter what, but it's an even longer grind if you're throwing all those minutes at guys that are inconsistent or that their execution isn't always there. And so that's why players like Temple get in there. Also, if they can stay healthy, then that's another big X factor and all this. That's a big part of why Andrew Harrison ended up being the starting two. I mean, I don't think they intended it last year, but with Selden missing time. No, it was supposed to be Ben McLemore, and then he got hurt. There was supposed to be Wayne Selden, and he got hurt. And then you look up, and, and that's what it is, right? And so um, that leads into so- something I wanted to ask you now, which is, how do you? What do you think they want to see at the two at the two right now? You know, you talked about so last year it was going to be Macklemore, Macklemore, and then probably Selden as his backup, and Harrison as the utility guy. What do you see that dynamic looking like at this point this year? 
you know, you know, I think to me you start sort of at the three because that trickles down to what's going to happen at the two, and I, I just assume, given you know the investment in Kyle Anderson, he's probably your starter at, at small forward. And if he's your starter at small forward, then that raises the question of what's going to go happen with Dylan Brooks. Dylan Brooks started 74 games for this team last season, played in all 82. Um, you can see, you can feel this summer that sort of the organizational embrace of Dylan Brooks. Like he was, he was the only incumbent Grizzlies player. Omri Cassidy was also there who had just signed, but the only incumbent Grizzlies player who was in Spain playing in the Gasol Brothers charity game. Uh, when the Grizzlies, you know, introduced their new uniforms for the season, it was Mike Connolly and Dylan Brooks doing that. Um, they, they are very high on Dylan Brooks as an organization. Um, I also, when I talked to them last year, people in the organization, there was some sense that they thought the two might be his ultimate position down the line. And so I think there's a good chance Dylan Brooks is a starter at the two because I think they want, they want, he's a guy who's going to get every opportunity to be a major player on this team if he can, if he can be one. And so if I had to bet today, I would bet that they're going to play a little bit bigger in their starting lineup and start him at the two and Anderson at the three. But it is possible that Brooks ends up Dylan Brooks ends up coming off the bench, in which case, you know, I do not think Marshawn Brooks will be a starter at the two. Um, if it's not Dylan Brooks, then it's going to be a Wayne Selden versus Garrett Temple competition. And I, I'm sort of a fan of Selden talent-wise, but I, I sort of, you know, a betting man would probably be be safer to bet on Temple there. Yeah, I really like Selden too, and it was one of my bigger disappointments in the early part of last season that we just didn't get to see him with the, with that group of players because I I just like the way that he slots in with other good players around him. The same could be true for Dylan Brooks. We didn't really get to see it much with him either for obvious reasons, and so either one of those guys, and I think all three of them will get a chance. I mean, it's just you know, whoever takes right. the reins can do it, and that's also the benefit as much as fans kind of don't like to necessarily think about this when training camp is not just about those couple of preseason games that are often at neutral sites and like weird stuff. There's a lot of information that the coaches are gathering from the practices, from shoot arounds and everything else. And so my instinct is that nobody just like takes over that job unequivocally. It could happen, but they'll get, they'll get chances. And I like the look kind of with, with all three of them. And the benefit for Memphis is that they're deep enough now, whoever doesn't get that spot can still get minutes, and then if anybody gets hurt, they have enough players to kind of patch in the gaps. Now, they're not going to be as good, just like any other team is in the same situation, but having Marshawn Brooks, having Dylan Brooks if he doesn't start, and Selden and Temple, like they have, they have bodies to throw at this, and hopefully they won't have to be using those bodies at point guard, because not only do they have Mike Conley coming back, but... Harrison and Shelvin Mack, and I'm I, I like Andrew Harrison. I thought he had a nice year last year, but I understand bringing in somebody like Shelvin Mack. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little bit concerned because they also brought in Javon Carter. But if they that they have the right. roster spaces to keep all four of those guys, and I love having a lot of point guards on roster because you can't really replace it if they're not there. Something you can attest to, probably from personal experience. So right. how they balance the end of their roster is going to be important in terms of not only just like from a game to game basis, but also keeping those guys happy because they, you want to make sure that everybody feels they got a fair shot and that they're staying ready so that they're engaged in the season. Yeah. You know, Javon Carter, um, 
tore a ligament in his thumb this summer. He's not going to be ready at the start of the season, and so that probably helps helps a little bit, uh, you know, with that log jam at, at the backup point guard. It's going to be a clear Shelvin Mack versus Andrew Harrison battle in camp. I don't think you'll see Javon Carter doing anything with the Grizzlies till midseason. Probably he'll probably spend a lot of time with the Memphis Hustle um, initially when he come when he's coming off the injury. Um, but you know. I, I think they certainly have better depth behind Mike Connolly, but I don't know if any of if, if if it's very good. You know, I I don't I think on the wing there's a lot of guys who could step up into major roles. I think at backup point guard there's a competition for minutes behind Mike Connolly, but I don't think any of those guys. If Connolly goes down again, it's going to be hopeless. And I don't think any of those guys can do anything for you as a starting point guard. And I also don't think any of them. I mean, Harrison has the kind of game for this. I don't think any of them are good enough that they're going to force their way into lineups with Mike Conley as much. Um, in the past, the Grizzlies have liked sort of that, you know, more of those two-ball handler lineups to get Conley off the ball and free him up as a scorer, which is important because if this team's going to be competitive, Mike Conley has got to score because I don't know where else scoring is coming from. They need Conley to get back to be a 20-point scorer like he was two seasons ago, and it's better for him if there's more ball handling on the floor. I don't think it's coming from those point guards, and I think that's one of the reasons. That's one of the things they like about Kyle Anderson, that he can be – he can run – they can run a lot of the offense through Kyle Anderson to help free up Conley. But I don't think you're going to be able to see a lot of those sort of smaller backcourts. Just, I just don't think Mack and Harrison and Carter are good enough for that. I also don't see as much value added, which I think is what you're getting at there. You know, there yeah. are, it, it, maybe maybe you could dance around a little bit with with Conley and Marshawn Brooks. I think that there would be some intrigue there in terms of how you, you know, yeah yeah Garrett Temple can, ha- can can handle a little bit. Yeah. Maybe there's that. Um, and so yeah, I mean you'll find ways to, to to get Conley off the ball with 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 truer wings on, on the floor, but with not. I mean, cause they had success in the past with Conley and Jared Bayless together and. And some, I mean, they were terrible when Andrew Harrison was point guard, but when Conley and Harrison played together, that, that tended to be pretty good for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think this year, more than likely, you're going to be playing truer wings because I think you have more talent there than, than, than you've had in the past few seasons. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Something I wanted to, to discuss is let's ignore injuries because I think that gets into a whole different kettle of fish than we want to really get into, but which players you expect to outperform what they did last year and which players might take a step back this year? You know, in terms in terms of like who might get better, I think the first guy you got to look at is Dylan Brooks. Um, the, he had a great rookie season by, by the standards of a mid second round pick, right? Um, he, he, he was top five in rookies in minutes played. Um, he his shooting was pretty good for a rookie wing, especially you know one coming later in the draft, forty four percent from the floor, thirty six percent from three. Um, if you watch him play over the course of the season, you sort of saw this arc where middle of the year he seemed to get more comfortable and he got more efficient. And so in in, in December January over those two month period, he was shooting forty three percent from three, and really looked like he had a chance, had maybe has a chance to be a really good NBA three point shooter. Later in the season, when this whole thing was falling apart, they started giving him the ball more and letting him sort of create more. And he handled it pretty well, but his efficiency went down, as you would expect. And so in March and April, he was averaging 16 points a game. The shooting wasn't bad. It was 44% from the floor, 35 from the line. Um, and so to me, there's a real question with him of what kind of scorer can he be? Uh, his athleticism is such 
that the rest of his game is, is there's going to be a ceiling on that. He's a he's a you know average athlete, short wingspan. He plays hard and he plays smart, but he's never going to be a great defender. He's never going to be a great rebounder. There's a limit to what he's going to do for you overall. But could he be a secondary scorer? Can he be a 13, 14, 15 point a game? You know, your third, fourth option kind of scorer. I think maybe. I think he looks. I think he looks like he's a good NBA three point shooter or can be. And he's not one dimensional. He can attack a closeout. Uh, he can take contact. He's pretty crafty, finishing around the rim. And so I think they would love to see him step up and be a third or fourth scorer on a decent team. Can he be, you know, a 13, 14 point a game guy, whether that's as a starting wing or coming off the bench? And while the long term question is about Jaron Jackson Jr., the shorter term is probably can Dylan Brooks be that kind of player? Or is he always going to be the, your, you know, eighth, ninth, tenth man, you know, wing player? Yeah, I think that's a, a definitely a good pick. One that I'm going to be keeping an eye on is Jermichael Green. I mean, Green last year, right. the biggest change that happened was his jump shot completely abandoned him. I mean, so two years ago, 41% on jump shots. Last year, 34%. And when you take right. a lot of jump shots, that difference in, in success rate makes a big difference. And I, I Well, think, I, think one thing you'll, I think one thing you'll notice on that is that Jamichael Green and Marcus Hall's three-point percentages both went down in unison, right? Um, and so was that a case of they both sort of overperformed the year before and were due to come down, which I think that's probably a factor, but also is it environmental, right? Is it playing without Mike Conley for a whole season and having Tyree Kevins as your point guard for a whole season? Does that, does that, does that impact the, the quality of shots you're getting? And so I think having Mike Conley back will help both Gasol and Jamichael Green in terms of their, in terms of their, their shots. And Jamal Green, I, I mean, I agree with you. He's he's due for a bounce back season. He's I think he's going to be 28 this year. He's in a contract season. Um, he got injured on opening night last year. Hurt his ankle. Was out for a month. And by the time he finally got his game back together, the season was lost, and no one could, no one noticed. He was pretty good down the stretch. I think he he is fully capable of being, you know, a 12.8 rebound energy defender who can stretch the floor a little bit, get back to that 35, 36, 37, 38% from three. You know, I, I don't think he's a long-term starter in the NBA by any means, but I think he is a quality rotation big. He was not that for a, a big chunk of last season, but there's no reason he can't be that. And I do think he is primed for a pretty significant bounce-back season. Something else I'm going to be watching this year, and it doesn't happen that much just because San Antonio keeps their guys, but Kyle Anderson had a really nice defensive year. One of the biggest surprises in right. the NBA was San Antonio continuing to defend at a high level without Kawhi. I mean, they just they just didn't have great defensive personnel if you looked at it and thought about it in the abstract, but then they put it together really nicely, and those players... That, that do well in San Antonio, they don't often get out of the cocoon, at least not, not in the kind of the prime of their career or even pre-prime like Kyle Anderson is. Right. And so how he wor- functions on that end on a different team with different surrounding talent, with different coaching, I- I'm going to be very interested in that. I- I'm not saying necessarily that he's going to be worse, but I just want to see it. And we're going to also get that opportunity with Danny Green in Toronto, both those guys. I mean, Green yeah, is well- older, but we'll see it. The Grizzlies believe, and they may be wrong about this belief, but the Grizzlies believe that not only will will what Kyle Anderson did in San Antonio translate, but that, he, that but that there's untapped potential with him, and particularly on the offensive end, they they think that 
that you can raise his usage, make him more of a playmaker, surround him with more shooters. And it sounds funny to say you, you'll be surrounded with more shooters with the Grizzlies, but actually, given the way San Antonio played last season, that might sort of be true, right? Because the Grizzlies finally have a front court rotation where everybody's a three-point shooter to some degree with Gasol and and Jackson and, and, and Jamichael Green. And, and, you know, they should be able to surround him with four three-point shooters most of the time when he's on the floor. They feel like there is he can be better outside of San Antonio. To me, one of the notes of caution you have to have as a Grizzlies fan is looking at this team's track record of free agency, and especially when they bet against the decisions that, that other teams make, right? You know, they they bet against Dallas letting, you know, Dallas knew Chandler Parsons better than anyone, and he was, obviously that was an injury situation, but Dallas had better intel than anyone. They bet against that. Um, they signed Vince Carter away from Dallas, similar situation. Um, they have a bad track record with free agency. The last, I mean, Tyreek Tyreek Evans was a great free agent signing, but he was a secondary, right? If you look at their primary free agent signing the last several years, the free agent which they gave the most money to, Ben McLemore was a bust, Chandler Parsons was a bust, um, Brandon Wright was a bust, Vince Carter was a bust in season one. He, he ended up getting better when he got healthier in season you know two and three, but they they have they have failed on every like primary free agent signing for years at this point. And so I think Kyle Anderson is a better bet than the rest because of his youth and because of his health and because of his varied skills. But, you know, the idea that they that they sort of that that San Antonio would not give the mid level exception that level of money to a twenty four year old wing player, um, you know, makes you wonder if if, you know, what I wrote at the beginning of free agency, I did a free agency preview, and I did mention Kyle Anderson. And what I wrote at the time was he's probably not worth a contract that San Antonio wouldn't match. And I do wonder if that is true. Yeah, I, I mean, it's always a concern when a team that we respect as having a, a, a strong front office has the capacity to match. In this case, it was to match. So it wasn't even just yeah. a preference among a player. And they just go, we're good. So yeah, and it's not. I mean, it's it's a it's a biggish deal, but it's a mid level deal. It's a twenty four year old player who plays a position of need around the league, right? And so, um, you know, I the idea that that San Antonio would decide to let, let him walk for that price would 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 certainly give me me pause from a Grizzlies perspective. Is there anybody that you think? I because this team was just so ravaged by injury last year that it's fair to say that nobody will. But is there anybody you think will st- take a step back this year? Well, the, the big concern has to be Marcus All on that front. I mean, when you're a 22 win team in a small market, you don't have a lot of overrated players on your roster, right? But Gasol, it's not that he was bad last season. You know, 17 points, eight rebounds, four assists, 1.5 blocks. It's a pretty good stat line. His rebound rate was actually his best since, since 2012. He made a commitment to being a better rebounder, and he was a better rebounder. Um, he stayed healthy pretty much all season despite playing really heavy minutes early on. I mean, his minutes were lower late, but that was that, that was strategy, not because he wasn't capable. But it was also the worst shooting season of his career, 42% from the floor. I think it was probably the worst defensive season of his career. Um, the Grizzlies were terrible without him. They went 1-8 and eight when he didn't play, but they weren't much better with him either. And when you watch the games, it was harder than ever before to discern what his impact was on the team. 
And so the real question going into this season will be his age 34 season as a seven foot true center. To me, the real question is how much of what you saw last season was, was natural age related decline and maybe the shifting of how the game's played around the league and how that impacts a player like him and how much of that was the result of environmental, of environmental factors that the Grizzlies hope they've corrected. You know, the absence of, you know, who I call his pick and roll life partner and Mike Conley, who is back, the defensive breakdowns that come to playing so many young players, which, which which drives Gasol crazy when guys, when you know, young players are out there missing assignments. Um, the relationship he had with Fisdale, the turn towards tanking, which he he hated, he detested what the team was doing. Uh, you know, it was it was a violation of his ethics basically, and so he hated everything about last season. And so, how much of it is how much of that can he turn around because the environment is better this season, or how much of it is just that he's a center who's about to turn thirty four? The defensive end is what really concerned me last year. There were times, yeah. and it's it, it's always hard as somebody who who pops in more on teams than somebody who follows them regularly. But I wasn't seeing the defensive impact that I was standard. Not even like prime Marcus but even from a like a year or two ago. And well, if, he he's definitely a step slower. That sure. is that is that is the case, but. It also there were more breakdowns happening around him. He's not mm-hmm. out there with Tony Allen. I mean, I mean, they've had bad defenders before, like Zach Randolph was a bad defender. But the collective defensive IQ of the team was pretty bad last season. He's out there with Jarrell Martin and Ben McLemore and Deonta Davis and some of these guys that have moved on, and that was frustrating for him. Um, also, I just think I think the way the season went, the tanking sapped his spirit. That was actually last year was the first season since since his rookie year that he has played a single basketball game without a playoff goal on the horizon. The Grizzlies missed the playoffs his second season, but only but only because he got injured late in the year. They had a winning record, you know, going into the last month of the season. They were in the playoff race, and they didn't fall out of it until he got hurt and had to had to shut down for the last few weeks of the season. And so last year was the first time and since his rookie year that that he was playing games that didn't mean anything, and he 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 hated it. Um, and so I think the lack of he he's a guy who plays with a lot of emotion. He's a very expressive, emotional player on the floor. And so I do think that that impacted his the quality of his play. That said, I also think he's just slower. And so I, you know, to me, it's a very much an open question how much I think he will bounce back some, but it's a real question how much he can bounce back. We can go a little bit more into the lineup realm. And so what I'm what I'm most interested in, we already talked about kind of where the starting five would go. What do you think will be and should be the crunch time five man lineup for Memphis? Well, I mean, the question is, like, when is Jaron Jackson ready for that? Like, when is he the answer to that? And I don't know that he's the answer to that on opening night. Because I do, like we talked about earlier, I have, I have, I have faith in Jermichael Green as a, as, a, as a good sort of two-way role player in the NBA. And so I, mean, I think initially that your crunch time lineup is probably what I think is probably your starting lineup, which is Conley, Dylan Brooks, um, Kyle Anderson, Jermichael Green, Marcus All. I think it would be disappointing to the Grizzlies if, you know, if they're having Garrett Temple out there to close games instead of Dylan Brooks and Kyle Anderson because they want Brooks and Anderson to be players who bridge them into the future. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's probably that until Jaron Jackson Jr., um, you know, forces his way into the mix. Obviously, it'll change game to game, and there'll be nights, you know, there may be nights. We haven't talked much about Marshawn Brooks, who's a real sort of mystery man. 
um, the Grizzlies tend to believe in what they saw from him last season. I have no idea how real that was. It was a, it was a like a seven eight game sample late in a lost season. This guy just comes over from China and starts dropping buckets on everybody. Um, I don't have faith that that was real, but I you know it could be. Maybe he got better, you know, in the five years or whenever he was overseas. But maybe he's such a bucket getter that he's helping them close games because they need scoring. I mean, that's possible. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about Wayne Selden earlier. I, I I think he's a player who I believe in more than the team does. Um, that was the case with James Ennis a couple of years ago. I thought that they were too quick to, to get rid of Ennis and to pull the string on him. I would love to see Wayne Selden get as much opportunity as Dylan Brooks or Marshawn Brooks or Garrett Temple because I think, I think he may be the most talented of all four overall. Um, but I worry that – you know, the injuries he had last season, he had every chance to win that job last season, and then he had the, the, the same hip injury essentially as um, Kawhi Leonard had and just never got the chance. And I worry that now the roster's so crowded that he may not get the chance. Um, and so it's sort of, I'm sort of roundabout way of answering your question. I think it could be fluid and it could change a lot game to game because I think they have depth on the wing, but they don't have clear cut. There's no all-stars out there, right? And so – you know, the the quality difference between the number one wing player and the number five wing player may not be that that big. Something that I'm going to keep an eye on with their closing lineups is that I think it's easier for them to go small at the four than at the five, just because their best yeah. two their best two options at center, unless you're counting Jaron Jackson as going small at the five, which I sure as hell don't. I consider that just playing a center. No, at center. it could be it could it could be instead of Green or Jackson, it could be neither. Yeah. Sometimes it could be it could Kyle be. Anderson at the four with you know Brooks and Selden or Brooks and Temple. You know, on the wing. Or Marshawn Certainly. Brooks, if he's scoring, like if he's hot at the beginning, you know, it's a right. point in the fourth quarter. I could see, I think that's the wrinkle that they might add in is Anderson at the four and Gasol, Gasol at the five until, unless and until somebody takes that from him. But yeah, right. what, what J.B. Bickerstaff does in terms of managing minutes and managing those kinds of opportunities is going to be important because now that this is his team, he has to really define it. And so is it going to be the guys that are playing well in that given night, the players who are a part of their long-term future, some combination of those two? And also, does that evolve over the course of the season, depending on where Memphis ends up in the Western Conference pecking order? I mean, maybe you start out with people who give you the best chance to win, and then let's say in March they're out of it or barely in it, then maybe you start to tilt a little bit towards more developmental possibilities. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think one of the things that we haven't talked about at all, which is it's at the very core of of understanding this Grizzly season, is that the incentives last year, and then a lot of people in in Memphis got so used to the team being good that there was a lot of, you know, angst about it, but the incentives organizationally were clear last season that once they figured out they couldn't be good, that they had to go into tank mode, that they had to maximize the draft pick. Those incentives are not the same this season, and it's because of a pick they owe to Boston. They owe a first-round pick to Boston that um, the clock starts ticking on that this coming summer. It's top eight protected in 2019. It's top six protected in 2020. It is unprotected in 2021. And so the certainty is they will be sitting Boston a first-round draft pick sometime over the next three summers. What is what is up for debate is what that means for you incentive-wise. I mean, do do you want to try to keep your pick this summer and kick the can down the road, or do you want to get off that pick and and remove the risk of of losing a better pick down the road? And the team believes, and I and I concur, 
that the best thing for them it's, it's sort of counterintuitive but the best thing for them in terms of long-term rebuilding is to be good enough this season to send Boston their pick um, to send them a mid you know they hope they're a playoff team they're probably not but to send them maybe a mid lottery pick late lottery pick in 2019 and not in what they everyone seems to believe is going to be a weaker draft and not risk giving up a better pick in a better draft in 2000, you know, 20, 2021. And so as long as they're, it's not even a matter of being in the playoff race, as long as they're decent, I think they, they will sprint through the finish line because they would rather give that pick to Boston this summer. Now, if the wheels come off completely and they're just terrible, terrible, maybe that changes, but they don't have an incentive to tank this season, and that may sort of impact the way they play out the season. I think it's going to be all about how close they are to that eight line. And so for the lottery reform is going to change certain elements of this. So like if you have the eighth right. worst record, there's about a 40% chance that you pick ninth or worse. And that I believe that's worse than before just because they flattened it out a little bit. So they probably, right. to feel comfortable, would want to get to seven, maybe even six. And that might be too much to ask. I mean, they're, even though I believe there are fewer teams that are going to be openly tanking this year, there are going to be bad teams. Like, we, we know that. That's just the way the NBA is. And so, unless right. Memphis, and, and Memphis has the, you know, assuming they start the season healthy, those teams are going to be gaining ground on them, theoretically, if we're talking about moving towards the bottom. And so, that it'll be harder at that point. And so, if, let's say, they're in the playoff mix until Mar- mid-March, let's say. So, then it's the one month left in the season. At that point, you get into this situation exactly like you were talking about. The way that I like to describe teams that don't have their first-round pick is not that they try to win every game, because that's not necessarily true. It's that they are really indifferent to the consequences of winning. So they're going to do whatever well, see, is best for them. Yeah, see, I don't think they're indifferent. I think they want to lose their pick. What I'm saying is if they get to the point where they know they're going to lose their pick, I don't think they're going to just push on the accelerator. They're just going to do whatever is best for them as a franchise. If that's give Jaron Jackson Jr. more time, by all means, give him more time. You you don't have to play your best guys during that last month of the year, especially considering a, a fair portion of those kind of question mark players for the Grizzlies are pending free agents. So like Jermichael Green, maybe you play Jaron Jackson over Jermichael Green because you might as well. You know, that's sort of a circumstance. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think their hope is that, you know, two years ago, that, that, that season where they won the 43 games we talked about, that, that season they had an unusual amount of, of you know, under 25 players who were non-lottery picks on their roster. I, I did a piece about this at the beginning of that season. I looked at, you know, all the other teams that were going to be in the playoff race, whether that was, you know, Portland or Denver, or all these other teams. And the number of rookie contract players who were non-lottery, the Grizzlies, I think, at the highest of all of them. Like, they, the, the back half of the roster was all these lottery tickets, right? And I think this season, they, they sort of they feel like they figured out who they thought was good, and they got rid of who they thought wasn't good, and then they, they brought in some, like, real players, some your Garrett Timbles and Shelvin Mack and Amory Gaspies, um, to sort of shore up the back end of that roster. And so, other than Javon Carter, who's a rookie this year, and, and right, at, right now it's your fourth point guard, and other than Ivan Rab, who is a second-year player who at the moment is the fourth big in a three-big rotation, other than those two players, I think their hope is that it's not a choice. That that you know you're not play, to play. I mean, to some degree, maybe it is with Jaron Jackson, but they think he's going to be good, like this year. And so, I think their hope is that. You know, to play Dylan Brooks and Kyle Anderson and Jaron Jackson is not like, you know, to, to sit down better players. 
when they get to get to that point. I mean, that's a question with Javon Carter and Ivan Rab, but I don't think this roster is as heavy with sort of young players who may not be anything as who are total mysteries as it has been the past couple of years. That is a very good way of thinking about it, and I agree with you that the the concept of sacrifice and there are so many examples over the over the years of the the youth movement being more stark. I mean, Phoenix over the last couple of years is a good one, but there are a ton of different ones. And Memphis, right. those players are you know they're similar quality. We were talking about how all these like perimeter players are you know they're maybe none of them are amazing, but they're all pretty similar. So even if they did go to a youth movement, it wouldn't be substantially different. I've been having some interesting kind of questions in my head about thinking in in the larger picture relative to other NBA teams about defining Memphis's strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a good question when you look at the roster. I mean, I, you know, the strength is if they're healthy. If they're healthy, it's Mike Conley and Marcus all together, and the you know the. The, the experience they have winning basketball games in, in, in the regular season. The Grizzlies have not had a losing record with those in games those two players play together since Marcus Hall's rookie season. Um, and obviously they've had good teams for through most of that, but like last year they didn't. They were twenty two and sixty, but they were seven and five when Gasol and Conley played. And and you know a couple of years ago that the year that they had all the injuries and you know they played twenty eight different players, you know they 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 sort of skidded in at forty two and forty to get in the playoffs, but you know they were twenty six and twenty when those guys played, which is better. Um, early in their career when they missed the playoffs, you know they had a winning record, even though they were losing record in the season, they were a winning record with Gasol and Conley. And so those guys have played together so long and are so solid, and in theory, and obviously with Gasol it wasn't true last year, but in theory, like two-way players who play who play together in the pick and roll, leaders off the floor, they just sort of know how to win games together. And until proven otherwise, the assumption is, the working assumption is that the Grizzlies are a competitive team when those guys are on the floor. That's just sort of been the case their whole career. Um, but the question is, how well are they going to keep playing given their age, and how much are they going to play? And so I think, you know, the big concern with the Grizzlies is, um, you know, look at the 10 years they played together. The first five, the Grizzlies played a total of 27 games where they did have both on the floor. And the past five, they played 164. And so, like, you know, how good are they going to be and how much are they going to be there on the floor? But they still, until proven otherwise, the strength of this team is having those two guys playing together. There's a continuity there and a winning continuity that at this point is it's not quite like anything else. They're they're going to be, they will be now that Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili have moved on. They will be the longest tenured teammates in the NBA, and and they've been winning together for for a decade. And so, just the familiarity of those two players sort of has to be the strength. Once you get into like specific, you know, you know specific, you know, you know types of things on the floor, it's hard to find strength. Well, I don't, there, I don't know what it is. There are things, actually, that I want to mention that I'm going to be watching. because it, So last year, you know, such, such an aberrational year for Memphis. We've talked about that at length on this podcast. There were two things that the Grizzlies have done well over the last while that, that carried over. One of them is forcing turnovers. They did a nice job of that last right. year. I would expect them to be similarly good, if not better, depending on how guys like Kyle Anderson fit in and everything like that. Then the other one that is going to be really interesting this year is getting to the free throw line. If they can get to the line a fair amount this year, can be a nice little cushion for their offense, depending on nights when the shots are falling and nights when the shots are not falling. Now, depending, a lot of that's going to depend on whether teams have to defend Michael Green, especially if he starts, if they're going to have to defend him all the way out, where, where they're going to position it, who who gets on the floor. And, but 
if that can continue and be a strength, even if it's not like the top five in the league, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily expect that. But if it's top right. half, sure, that can be a, a a positive force for their offense. Defensively, I mean, sorry, weaknesses, I have a couple different things that I want to keep an eye on. One is the kind of the shot the shot creation and the penetration creation right. from guys that are not Mike Conley. They have a, a couple of interesting pieces. We've talked about Kyle Anderson. Marshawn Brooks, I think of him more as a bucket getter than a creation like a separation yeah. creator, but he can still do some of that. But how it gets a little bit dicey, and they we talked about how they have a bunch of different point guards. That's not really the strength for any of their backups, and so that's a little bit of a concern. And then I don't love their, you know, like they don't really have that go-to perimeter defender. Granted, a lot of teams don't right now. It's just the way the league is. So if you know, like on that night when they're there aren't, you know, they're let's say six or seven really good small forwards in the league, but I guess if you throw Kyle Anderson on him, you hope it works. Some nights it might, some nights it won't. He actually did a pretty good job on Kevin Durant a couple times last year. But those real just like when times get tough, there are elements that you, there are times when it's not a point guard or a center that is going to define that game or that, you know, that stretch of time. And somebody's going to have to step up. They have a lot of possibilities there, but when a team doesn't have that guy, I worry about the absence. Well, I have a piece that I'm publishing next week where I, I, I talk with uh, Chris Wallace and John Hollinger sort of extensively about teams offseason, what they did, what it means, et cetera. And like one of the quotes from Hollinger is, we have to get back to guarding people or nothing else matters. And they believe that they have to be, you know, if not a top 10 defense, certainly an above average NBA de- team defense, that they have to be a meaning, they have to get back to being a strong team defense to be competitive and that it has to start there to them. And if you look at what they did this summer, that's the through line for everything. You know, the, the three rookies they brought in, um, Jaron Jackson in the first round, Javon Carter in the second round, and the, the Japanese kid, Yuta Watanabe, who he won't play much, but they were all defensive player of the year in their respective conference. You look at the veterans they brought in, Kyle Anderson, you know, the defensive, the advanced metrics, the, the defensive metrics on him, which Hollinger knows very well. Are, are extremely extremely impressive. They believe in him as a defender, even though he's sort of an unconventional defender, right? It's more length and positioning than athleticism. You know, Garrett Temple, they believe, is a strong defender. They believe to the degree that Omri Caspi will play. He's a guy who can play in a system defensively as a team. And the other thing those players all have in common is high IQ, high character. And so they believe that they have to be a meaningful, a good team defense to be competitive. And so that has to be a strength. If their team defense overall is not a strength, then this team is just going to be bad. Offensively, I think, you know, I, you know, I think you're right. Maybe they, they need to sort of get to the line more. They have some smart players. They have good cutters. They have good passers. But it's going to be a real challenge, you know, for J.B. Bickerstaff does he have does he have the creativity if anyone does to 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 sort of to build a competitive nba offense from the roster that they have because they will be and they and they they've said it and this in the story i wrote they've said it straight out we're going to play slow like everyone everyone every offseason talks about playing fast they're not talking about that anymore they're saying flat out we're going to play slow we're going to play slow we're going to play half court basketball we're going to have to execute with our guys, and my, I wonder if do they have enough shooting? I think they're okay, maybe, but it's not going to be a strength of the team. And do they have enough to get to your point? Do they have enough shot creation? Um, I think there's going to be such a burden on Mike Conley to create offense for himself and others. Um, 
that if he doesn't have, he doesn't come back strong and have sort of a gangbusters offensive season. I just don't know if this team can score well enough to really be competitive. Yeah, that's exactly my concern. And when you're relying so heavily on a player who has missed time and when you don't have really any other alternatives, or if it's just a cold night or whatever, I mean, they're they're so heavily reliant on Conley. And they have other players that can step up, but nobody can really step up and do what he does. So that's definitely a concern. And that leads into, to a point, uh, what you think are the key questions for the Grizzlies this year? Um, I think, is Conley diminished? Um, is Marcus all committed? Does J.B. Bickerstaff have a plan, particularly on the offensive end, as I just mentioned? Is Jaron Jackson ready? And how does their – they're deep on the perimeter. I mean, with – and they're deep on the perimeter, but how does that? How does the pecking order set up? And to me, those are like those are the, the that set of questions is what I'm sort of going into the preseason with. But the most important one of those is is, is Conley. Is he healthy? And if he if he is healthy, is he back to what he was two years ago? Um, if he, he he's if he comes back on the wrong side of 30, can he be the player he was two years ago? The last time we saw Mike Conley healthy, because last year even even when he played, he played hurt. Like the 12 games he played. He could barely. The Achilles was 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 extremely painful for him, even when he was playing. But he didn't he didn't stop playing because of an, because he suddenly got injured. He was playing with the injury, and he just couldn't deal with the pain. And that's why he sat down and why he had surgery. So the last time we saw him healthy was you know the spring of I guess 2000, whatever it was, the season before this, the playoff series. They lost in six games to the Spurs, but he averaged 25 points a game. And that was that he played the best basketball of his life in that series the last time we was healthy. So can he pick back up for that, or is that something we're just never going to see again? And so I think the biggest question of all is, is, is Mike Conley, is he diminished? Is he healthy, and, if, and is he diminished? And I think the second question is probably around the coach, J.B. Bickerstaff. You know, can he – this will be the third season in which he's been a head coach, but it will be the first one – in which he's he's had he's had the job from the jump, and so I think he has the he has the belief of his core players um, in a way that David Fisdell did not. Um, I think he sort of proved himself internally as sort of a leader and as someone that people really like and look up to amid all the chaos of last season. But is he creative enough to manage this roster and, and get, especially on the offensive end, effective basketball out of it? Those are all excellent. I will echo them and add in Marcus Gasol's defensive step back last year. Is that right. an omen? Is that an aberration? That's a, a defining question for this team, especially I talked about my concerns about their perimeter defensive talent. And then another broad scale one, we don't hope it happens because it's never fun to deal with. But if it gets to the point where Memphis can pivot, where basically it's like, okay, well, we know where this team is going and where this team is going isn't let's say it isn't the playoffs, not not because they got hurt, but because they just aren't good enough. If that happens with the Conley, Gasol, right. both, whatever. What happens with that information? Do they keep it together because they kind of have to, because the, those players are a little bit older and they make a lot of money? Do they find a taker, like for Mike Conley? Is there, yeah, I mean, he's better than a lot of the, even, even if he's not 100% of what he was two years ago. Still, if he's 90% of that, he's still a really good basketball player. There are teams that could benefit from that. I'm thinking of the Orlando Magic in particular. Whether they right. want to pay him that full amount is another question. Kind of the same thing with Marcus Gasol. Because I think that, I, I hope, again, I hope we don't get to that point. I hope that's not what this season is. But should it go down that path, we will learn a lot about, you know, now Para, full-on owner, all that weird drama, 
is is behind the franchise and with the front office of where do they see this team and what is important to them we talked about how they've looked more for the long term with the anderson and jaron jackson decisions and so if it goes to that point what changes what looks different do they is it just shipping off the veterans on expiring contracts or do they start talking about the bigger stuff because it sounds to me and correct me if i'm wrong please but it seems to me like they said we definitely want to run it back for at least one more one more go round and i don't know if go round means one full year if it means until the deadline or something in between i feel like not to say that it won't happen at this point but i feel like they sort of the opportunity has passed to to, to do an effective blow up situation in terms of trading Gasol and Conley. Um, and they are sort of di- different situations. In terms of Gasol, I just don't think he has much trade value at this point, given his age, given the position he plays. I don't think you're getting much of a return. Um, he's got to opt out next summer. I don't think he, I, I'd be surprised if he opted out. It's like 26, 27 million. Um, you know, I, maybe he would opt out and re-sign with the Grizzlies on a, you know, a smaller deal that they sort of agreed to ahead of time, a two or three year deal to sort of take him towards the end of his career. Maybe something like that would happen, but I don't see him opting out and just going straight into unrestricted free agency. I also don't think he has a lot of trade value. Um, He also means a lot to the team and to the franchise. And I think that's easy to discount when you're not in a market. Um, all things considered, I, I don't think Gasol gets moved unless he asks to be moved. And if that happens, then yeah, they'll trade him. But I, 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 I would be very surprised to see Marc Gasol get traded unless he asks for it. Um, Conley's a little bit different situation because he is younger. He's under contract for longer. Um, his position is more of a position of need around the league. I mean, there are a lot of good point guards, but you know, not every team has one, right? Um, but the issue there is that his contract is bigger than Gasol's. Um, it tops out, you know, in the mid 30s, not in the mid 20s. Um, and given his age, given his injury history, and given the size of his contract, there are some incentive stuff in the back end of that contract that's that's based on games played. So there's some protection in it, but not a lot. Um, I, I think that would be a contract that you know, could you move off of it? Probably, but you're not going to get much in return. And given given what I believe would be a very minimal return from trading those players at this point, on top of what I think they mean to the franchise, um, I, I would be surprised if we got to that point. I feel I feel like we passed that point a couple years ago. I completely agree with you. I still you still want to see what happens. And another factor in all this is that Memphis, based on my projections, they're probably going if they let their pending free agents go they would be right around at the salary cap and so if they can't get off of either of those guys free and clear there isn't really much they're going to be doing with that space you're saving ownership money sure if you can do that but you're you're not really building a lot and i would expect that if a trade happened with one of those two or both that you're not nobody's taking them on you maybe you're getting back a superior player that makes some money over those two years and that's fine i mean that might even fit memphis's plans more but you're sitting there going, and then the second part of it, which is exceedingly important for all these teams, and, and I people talk about blowing teams up all the time like it's easy, and it's not. This, first of all, it's not easy like emotionally. You're talking about the people involved in the franchise. But also because in order to be so bad that you are reaping the rewards of a, of a teardown, you have to basically trade everybody who's good. That's the way it works in the NBA. And so moving one of Conley and Gasol is probably not enough. I mean, they would be pretty bad if they just traded, if they could theoretically just trade Conley, poof, if they could, like, the equivalent of the amnesty, but you trade him somewhere else and his money's off the books. Their offense just wouldn't work. So they would have 
those they would have those challenges. And so, you know, there's a little bit in my mind that goes, oh, well, they have this pick with Boston, everything else like that. And so while I agree with you that the expectation is they're going to play out this season, they're going to try to make the playoffs, even if they don't make the playoffs, they're still going to be good enough where they're going to give, give away that pick. It, it, I, don't, I don't really see, as you said, like that, that opportunity came a couple of years ago. They didn't take it. There will be years from now that people can discuss whether that was the good move or the right move and, and circumstances broke the way they did. But it, it seems unlikely to me that the offers would present themselves to really open that door for Memphis. Yeah, I mean, I don't really see it. I, 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 think, I think you sort of try to, you try to operate on two tracks probably for the next couple of seasons. Um, then at that point, the Boston obligation, your hope is off the table and you, you're free and clear going forward in, your, in terms of your draft. And then the Chandler Parsons contract comes off the books in two years, and that's when you, that's when you pivot. Now you have money. Now you have your draft pick. And at that point, you know, Gasol at that point is, you know, unless, you've, unless he's opted out and signed some extension or something, Gasol would come off the books at that point too. And so I think, you're, you know, you're looking at sort of a couple years before you make a hard pivot, probably. Um, and that's, you know, for a team that is going to be, you know, be fortunate to make, to get, to get an eight seed and get bounced in the first round. Like that's not terribly exciting. The good news is that you do have this, you know, you know, what will be a 19 year old, you know, kid in Jaron Jackson, who I believe is the most, has the most, in terms of combination of youth and raw talent, I think he's the most exciting. I don't know if he'll have the same quality rookie season, but as a prospect, I think he's the most talented player who's come into the organization since the Pal Gasol as a rookie. Um, I can tell you that the Grizzlies would have taken him higher than four. Um, so would I. I had him third on my board I published before the draft. I, I, I think there's a good chance the Grizzlies had him even higher than that. And so as you're muddling through, at least there's this one, this player, and you hope he's as good as they think he is, but you have this player to sort of build your hopes and dreams around, right? You're not muddling through on a team that doesn't have that doesn't have that piece of hope sort of already in place. And so I think, I think if Jackson develops the way they think he will, that will make the process more bearable. Agreed. And I really like Jaron Jackson as well. I can't remember what number I had him. I think it was four, but it was I had him closer to that group than I think others did. I really liked his defensive instincts and his offensive game. I mean, we, we don't know if that crazy three-point shooting performance the first game of Utah Summer League, if that is going to continue moving forward. But he still has more gifts on that end than maybe he's given credit for. And Jackson fits the modern NBA really well, which I like. And so as this team evolves, they have a piece that isn't going to become particularly outmoded as long as his development right. is on the track. And so that's very different than, like, let's say, Jaleel Okafor, when Okafor went high, where we were always kind of wondering if he was going to be good enough for the league to not pass him by. like that. But with Jaron Jackson, I think it's moving in his direction rather than moving away from him, which is always a good thing. And we can transition into the last big thing that, I, that we talk about in these, which is going through projections. And so really the three numbers, and we can have separate discussions on them, but it's the kind of the most likely, the expected outcome, and then a reasonable best case and a reasonable worst case. So this is not the extreme, you know, the, mo- the most extreme, right. but like kind of where you think, it, like where the bounds are on this. Well, here, here's another sort of, um, in addition to my Andrew Harrison's the opening night starter at the two guard two years in a row, I don't know if this is, if the Grizzlies are the only franchise for which this is true, 
but I suspect it, I suspect they are. This will be the 24th season of the Grizzlies franchise. Um, 23 previous seasons, Vancouver and Memphis, they have never had a win total in the 30s, not once. They have always been terrible or decent. They've never been mediocre bad. And so I think this is going to be it's going to be a new era of franchise history in which they are mediocre bad for the first time ever. And so this my prediction it may be slightly optimistic judging by Vegas. Um, but I've got them at 36 wins. 36 is the exact same number that I have. I, I could see them, you know, if, if the injury bug b- bites them worse, I could see that number substantially different. Like, so for me, the, the outer bounds on either end, I could see them winning in the, you know, the mid, low to mid 40s, maybe like 44, something like that. I think that's a reasonable best case if the defense really does come back more and then offensively they're above average, which is possible. I, I don't necessarily expect it. Right. Then the lower bounds, not including like losing a whole season due to injury or something like that. For me, that would be more like, I don't know, high. Tw- See, the weird thing is I, my instinct is to say high 20s, but teams don't team, teams don't often win in the high 20s the way that they did last right. year. So I'll go like 31 there. I could see that. But they're, they're too good to be like a 25-win team if they're healthy. Yeah, I'm actually a little lower than you on the worst case. I mean, in terms of the best case, you go back again to that season we talked about two years ago where they finished 43-39. and 39. That year, Gasol and Conley were both good, and they both played mostly full seasons. I mean, not t- totally. There were, I think, 16 games um, where they didn't have both on the floor. But they played mostly mostly full seasons. They were productive. But the rest of the team was a disaster that year. They played they played um, four of the 12 worst shooters in the NBA that season. I remember writing about that in terms of um, effective field goal per- percentage over a certain, you know, thousand minutes or certain threshold. I mean, they just had a bad, they had a bad supporting cast. They still got the 43 wins, you know, with Conley and Gasol. I can see a situation where Conley and Gasol are slightly worse than they were two years ago, but the supporting cast is a little bit better, and maybe that gets you as a 45-win team. Of course, in the West this year, 45, 45 wins still might not get you in the playoffs, but I've got 45 as sort of the upside. On the low end, you know, if the injuries kick in, um, I think it could go bad again, but I, I but I don't think you know it's not going to be the total disaster last season was. So I've got it like twenty eight, twenty nine as sort of the low end. Yeah, you're making me rethink it. I, I think I'm gonna move it down to thirty at bare minimum, uh, and because I, it, the offense in particular, like it could just not be as as crisp as it was before. And Connolly, you know, there worst case scenario, he'd be missing a lot more this season. But if if he plays like sixty, I mean, those other twenty two games are going to be rough. Well, the the Grizzlies and Connolly have both been you know optimistic all summer about his return, as teams tend to be. But we haven't seen it yet. I mean, yeah. he did not play when in the mini camp, you know, the USA camp. He did not do contact there. And so we haven't seen him play yet. And so, I mean, there's a lot of downside to this team given the age and injury history of Gasol and Conley. And I think particularly with Conley, if they don't have a a good Mike Conley for, you know, he's not going to play 82 games. So if they don't have, you know, a good Mike Conley for 60 games, they're going to, they're going to, it's going to be really rough, I think. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Anything else you feel that we haven't discussed on the Grizzlies that is worth bringing up? 
Um, no, not really. I mean, I, you know, the ownership front office thing is such a wormhole for the Grizzlies. We probably at this point shouldn't even get into it. But <laughs> at, 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 at least, at least the dark cloud is sort of gone. Like you know, the last season, there was this whole question of who was going to own the team, and now we know that Robert Robert Perra bought out. There were there were two minority owners who had a, a a chance to buy the team through a complicated buy sell arrangement, which I know you know all about. Most listeners probably don't. At this point, it doesn't matter. But that came through. The Robert Perra, the controlling owner, bought out the two minorities. He has re reasserted um, his ownership of the team. There's lots of questions um, about Paris ownership, um, but at least there's that uncertainty is gone. And so there is more stability going into this, this season than there was last season. And so, you know, there was nowhere to go but up, basically. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see also how Para puts his his stamp on on the front office and everything else over the course of time. It's I mean the ownership situation resolved itself over the last you know over the off season. So we'll see where it goes. Well, from- he, he he made the only time he spoke publicly all summer. He made the point that he sort of stayed away. He's never been very present, mm-hmm. but he made a point to stay away last season because. From a business standpoint, if he was if he was in Memphis a lot, you know, rooting on the team, that may have not been good for you know the the negotiation process of sure. of, of you know. And so he 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 has said that he plans to be more uh, more of a presence with the team, you know, hands on this season. We'll see what that means. Yeah, that'll definitely be worth watching. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Anytime. Thanks again to Chris Harrington for taking the time to come on. You can read him at the Daily Memphian, where he is the columnist, writer, and editor. It just launched on Monday, whether that is today or another day, depending. DailyMemphian.com is the way to check that out. And of course, thanks again to Jabari Young for talking about the Spurs. The next episode will be coming out on, I believe it's Wednesday night slash Thursday morning. Don't have an exact battle plan for that yet, but my guess is that it will be a single team in the news because there's a lot of news to catch up on, and I'm hoping to have a guest for that part as well, so you can look forward to that. And if you feel the hankering to hear more of me talking, I recorded Real Jam Radio for the week that just concluded with Andrew Sharp and Mike Prada on the Southeast Division. So we talk about all the, all those teams and what's going on and a fair amount about everything else. So you can check that out too. And thanks again to our sponsors, Hims, SeatGeek, and of course, The Athletic. Thanks, take care, and make it a great day. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.